Welcome to the Mad Ones. I'm your host, Cam Mostly Hairless, and back this week after having some doctor root around in her insides, hostess, Miss Jessica Green. How are you doing, Jessica? Is she frozen? Am I frozen? This is this is going to be how today works. Get used to it because she's she's in a storm and you can't you can't falter through that, but she'll come back eventually. Um, so until she comes back and gets to respond to my very nice way of introducing her, um, I'm just going to go ahead and let you know that this show is brought to you 100% by fans and patrons. So hit like, subscribe, share the show with your friends. We have all sorts of different topics that we talk about, some that are, that are apparently not legal in other countries, but hey, that's all right. Um, so share it with your friends. There's a lot of stuff to do that. You can join us for early episodes like this one. Right now we are recording early because our our, our guest is in another country, in another time zone. So if you want to be a part of that and join for Zoom Hangouts, uh, different parties, we're going to be doing one for St. Patrick's Day this next week. If, so if you want to join us for that, join Patreon, patreon.com slash themadones. And also grab a shirt or a mug over at wearethemadones.com slash store so you can represent us wherever you are. Hey, Jessica, you're, you're, you're back again. Hi. Thanks. Um, yeah, and to answer your question, I feel better. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a, such a genteel and kind way of putting things. So classy. So, I know. I mean... Uh, but we do ha- we do have a, a guest this week, and it was kind of one of those situations that was like um, a synchronicity, as some people will call it. And I would just say, you know, sometimes the Lord moves and the Holy Spirit does stuff for us that we need. Because um, if I talk about the Holy Spirit, apparently I've talked about talk about it like a Southern preacher. There's something wrong with me. I think it is a lot more fun when you do it that way, for sure. I mean, absolutely, <laughs> but. Uh, joining us tonight is someone that I met through Monica Perez through her Patreon perks because I was helping her out with a Zoom call and I wanted to do something interesting and fun for the the show on the week of St. Patrick's Day and I couldn't find an Irish, <laughs> which I, I'm trying to make <laughs> that sound Irish. as offensive as possible. Yeah, um, but she uh, Sarah was there in her chat and she was just lovely to talk to. She has a speci- specialty in soil science and she's also a christian which is right up my alley so i thought hey let's do that uh and so joining us right now is while jessica is once again frozen is sarah the dirt lady hey sarah hi hi cam hi jessica and hello everybody um i have to say i find it hard to believe that you couldn't find an irish person we are literally everywhere <laughs> well i want i wanted to find like a, a like a true irish person that was also interesting so that was like the it, thing because like yeah you know and so well, what's I, more interesting I, than dirt I, well i think so i mean i'm not sure everyone else agrees but i'm utterly convinced it's the most interesting thing on earth and you 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 are back jessica so you can you can ask a question if you'd like oh wonderful I actually, I wanted to say that I think dirt is really interesting too. I've been um, a gardener. I, I, I've been failing at being a gardener for about five years now. And I think that gardening is more about failure than it is about success for the most part. Absolutely. Well, you know, the plant has to die in order to grow. Doesn't it? I think that's actually in the Bible somewhere about a seed dying. Yes. Um, but in any case, I think... The more plants you kill, the more you'll grow ultimately. Yeah, this is what I was told very early on by some of the um, professors in my college was that um, gardening is a lot more about uh, growing your patients 
than it is growing actual food. And I found that to be very true once I got my hands into the dirt, as they say. So uh, I, I was interested to talk to a soil scientist just because I thought, hey, maybe this is a person who can help me kill less of my plants. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's interesting to me is, you know, how do you get into soil science? Like, so tell, tell us about how you get into this field, because it's not something that I've ever heard anyone else say that they do. Yeah, it's... Um... Well, look, we're primarily, agriculture is our biggest industry here on this island. Uh, we don't really have um, a, a huge amount of other industries. I mean, we have some pharmaceutical and, and some uh, sort of computing and multinational sort of stuff. But our native industry is really agriculture because that's the resource that we have. You know, we don't have mineral resources. This is what we've got. So mm -hmm. it's, it takes up a huge amount of our land. Uh, but I'm not from an agricultural background in the least. I grew up in the suburbs. I was just, I just loved the outdoors and I was interested in it. I just thought it was so exciting. I liked animals and I initially thought that I was going to go into um, maybe into livestock or agricultural science in a, in a broader way. But when I got to college, and all my friends at school, by the way, thought I was absolutely crazy. They could, they thought it was like a joke, you know, because I'd be like, yeah, farming. And they were like, okay, weirdo. Um, <laughs> But when I got to college, I found myself initially doing animal and crop production, which is broad. And I said, like, well, actually, I really like the soil side of things. And I just kind of narrowed in on it. And it just all happened very naturally. And, and then one day I looked around and I was like, actually, I, uh, I'm kind of firmly involved in this now. I couldn't imagine uh, doing anything else, really. Right. I... It when you said that at first you thought you would go into animals and then you mm -hmm. ended up going into soil, it kind of made me think is like, you know, with as many types of creatures that team within the soil, you kind of did. You just went into a very different category of animal. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the whole thing is with agriculture, with agriculture, everything starts in the soil. It's where the nutrients come from that go into the plant, that go into the animal. So you really are going back to absolute first principles. <laughs> Right, right, absolutely. There, the land well, that I live. Oh, go ahead, Cam. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, and that's and that's what interested me in talking to you. Like we had a good conversation in the chat on Monica's thing because I I was like, I'm not going to mess with the video, but I'll chat and I'll say the things that I'm thinking there. But we had a good conversation. I think that that's what's so interesting to me about to being a soil scientist is, you know, I'm a Christian, and so I very much consider that uh, about our origins that we are made from dirt or the same stuff that dirt's made out of and you know if you look at genesis which is such a fascinating book i we do mm -hmm. a bible study and jessica was like you know i can't wait to get to genesis and i'm like we, right now we started doing with the bible study we started with five chapters a week that we would go through and then we moved it down to two mm -hmm. so we could get a little bit closer into the text and stuff and i was like if we do genesis we're going to have to go down to either one chapter a week or the first week will be two the first two sentences of the book yeah it's it's loaded you know you could you could spend i mean you could spend a lifetime just on that yeah well and it, it's it's so and it's so densely packed because a lot of people want to take it as a science text and other people want to kind of just throw it out as pure metaphor and it's like it's so much more to that than that there's so much to it. There's so much pushback within the writing 
that pushes against um, other um, pantheons and other gods and how people view yeah. like like the I think I don't know if it was Sumerian or Babylonian, but there was there's one particular um, idea that comes from the, those other cultures and religions that it's like this fights against. And one of my favorite things that it fights against is um, so the the Babylonian kings and the emperors and all of that they would talk about themselves as if they were the only ones made in the image of God. And Genesis is written in such a way that it says, no, we all are. And mm -hmm. I just love that it breaks that paradigm within that culture. That's fascinating. But if you go back to how we're created, which God created Adam and Eve out of the dust of the ground, out of the mm -hmm. dirt and breathed the breath of life, Numa, not Numa, um, Ruach spirit into them, you, and then gave them, the the job of being essentially co-regents of the earth to take dominion of the earth and to um, work and till the ground and to bring order out of chaos that was the earth. And we've lost that since then. And so like this idea of how we are so deeply tied into the earth and what it is and how when you talked a little bit, which I'd love you to get into, about our relationship and how dirt is actually good for us. Mm -hmm. I was just like, I want to talk about this. This is a thing I want to talk about. So hopefully that wasn't too much saying just to get you to talk, but there's my, there's my thought process. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I thought it was, it, it's, you know, I remember being young and thinking, well, why are we here? Why were we created? And then it's, it's right there. It's at the start, you know, it's in Genesis, the Lord God put man upon the earth to work it and take care of it or i think to till it and husband it might be another translation there's a few different translations mm -hmm. but the one i'm familiar with is work it and take care of it mm -hmm. i said oh well that's really quite simple and it's it's complete in and of itself is to work it you work it it tillage is disruptive in and of itself it's invasive you're breaking up the soil you're planting it's yeah. it's the dominate the domination part of the whole thing and to take care for it it's a it's a husbanding it's a stewarding it's a, it's a quite a loving Thing to do yeah. gosh that's if that's our purpose and i believe that it is that's a really good one you know and it comes with blessing because obviously we then feed off of it and i suppose you know if we're of the earth and we are and if, if that's our assignment on this earth the more distant we get from that i think it's reasonable to assume that it would be hard on us i, I think we suffer a lot and and a lot of that's of our own doing um but i think as people people often express a desire to go back to the land, and we see that now. I mean, more people than ever have been looking at homesteading or gardening, and I suppose thinking of it from a self-sufficiency or self-sustainability point of view. But I think also that it's intrinsically good for us. There's a reason that even a child will plant, you know, broad beans in a toilet roll holder, or that people will have gardens, or people in cities will have allotments. There is something in us that wants to grow. And I think that's it. I think it's our assignment and that's yes. your call to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, I, and that's, that was why that curse was so um, devastating is because it was, yeah. a, uh, the, the earth in a sense had enmity against us. Yeah. And so when we're trying to till it, it, it stopped being a form of work that was enjoyable in a form of work that was positive for us in a lot of ways, <clears> even <throat> though it still has those properties, but suddenly we had to do a lot more. We had to toil. And I, I just mm -hmm. I find it fascinating. Do you know something? I always thought of work. Work is a curse. You know, it says that that's after the fall, after the flood, that, or that we're thrown, or after, sorry, after the fall and we were 
put out of the garden and we're cursed that the land will bring forth thorns and we will struggle against it and so on and so forth. But I didn't realize until much later that we had been assigned to work the garden before then. And I I suppose I don't have any huge insights into this, only I found it reassuring and a bit heartening that although it's been made harder, it it still is our purpose. It's not that it's not... um, I suppose we can still find satisfaction and goodness and, and joy in it, you yeah. know, and, and that there is a right order to things. And part of that is tilling and husbanding the earth. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that's the, the whole kind of story of the first few pages of Genesis is about God giving us a job. And that's, that's actually part of the idea of the image of God is mm-hmm. we are to, I, I, we are to image I will say for my part God. that, Okay. Am I back? <laughs> you, I, wa- I, I, I wanted to say that um, I, I feel that I found God in the garden in a way. Um, I very much, um, yeah, it's just we're working it as much failure as I have experienced in the garden, which really I've experienced more failure than success, to be honest. Even five years in, I'm still just like, why does everything die? Um, I, I really began to understand my relationship with the ground beneath me and how living it is how it's not just this inert substance but it's actually like this entire ecosystem that's teeming with life and um the realization of how intimately that was connected to my success in the garden uh really was like shocking for me and i realized how the leaves fall to the ground and become the earth and everything that lives dies and then becomes the earth and then feeds the next generation of life how um intricate and beautiful the design is. Really is and that very much even as a person who considered myself scientific and atheistic um there was it was undeniable to me how designed everything really was and that <clears throat> kind of broke my shell a little bit to begin with when i first started kind of wandering out of atheism and wandering toward christianity it was definitely the garden that started that process for me that's so wonderful. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, is it, is there something in the fact that you're doing what we were made to do, what's in us to do? Is that part of it? You know, that it, it kind of opens up the chink in the armor. And uh, yeah. you know, the other thing that's lovely about that is when you dig a hole in the ground, which is something I do more often probably than most people, and you're looking at the, the structure and the roots and the insects and the fungi and all of this, as you say, teeming with life. And you see, oh, this is actually very complicated. There's so much going yeah. on. It's so full of life. There isn't a square centimeter of creation that he hasn't given attention to and made immensely complicated. It's not like, you know, when you're playing, I don't know, I don't play video games. I haven't since I was a kid. But, you know, you go into a part that's like, just like blank, where it's not very well developed. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's just somewhere the developer didn't spend much time on. But there's nowhere that our developer didn't spend time on. It's all yeah. st- you know, it's also beautiful. It's the work of a master. It's amazing. Yeah. So well, me, I was going to say just before I go out again, real quick, there's a reason that when I, having never been a gardener, having grown up in a city my entire life, have picked up a clod of earth and smelled it. And the, the way that a, a healthy clod of earth smells is yeah. like refreshing to me because there's something ingrained in my DNA that says, this is good. Whatever this is, it's good. And yeah, yeah. Absolutely. yeah. Well, and, and all all I was saying was kind of tied to that. The fact that you found God within gardening is very fascinating, 
because uh, like I said, the, the, the job that was given in Genesis was to image God and to do, to be like God, to do these things, to create. And if you, what's interesting about that is a lot of people don't view the earth and especially Eden for what it was, which is a cosmic temple. Right. Oh, wow. And so you, you, if you look into the descriptions of tabernacles and of the temple, they are recreating Eden within the temple. And so that is what is tied directly to it is this, this high place, this mountainous area where there was a garden that was well tilled and beautiful is where God met man. And that is, and the earth was supposed to be that as well. And so our job was to take this well, well gardened area and the rest of, and take the rest of it and to move out from there and to till it and create it and add order to the chaos. And it's, it's beautiful in my opinion. So the idea that you can find God in a garden makes perfect sense because we were supposed to be gardening this whole time. And I think after it's all gardened, then we start doing even cooler stuff. I think, but it's, it's all fascinating to me. This is why I'm excited to talk about it. And maybe we'll talk about the Sabbath because me and <laughs> me and uh, yeah. Sarah had a little back and forth about the Sabbath late earlier. And I think okay. that that's a fascinating subject. But I don't want to get off dirt yet. So I'm just letting you know. Yeah, I want to talk I, about that later. I, I want to ask um, if I can throw a question out there, Sarah. Um, what are some of the things that you think sort of like we're doing wrong with our soils? And then some of the things that we could be doing better? Lawns. <laughs> Lawns are not great, really. Um, it's essentially a lot of work for very little reward. And it's kind of, I, well, I think it's boring looking. Some people love them. To my eye, it's just... It's a billiard table. It's there's nothing much going on there. It takes a huge amount of pesticides and a huge amount of artificial fertilizer to maintain this green. As I said, a billiards table. Um, right. But it's not very good. Well, aside from the pesticides and herbicides, it's not very good in terms of biodiversity. Plants need, or sorry, animals, insects, living things need a variety of plants to feed upon, and crucially. They need flowers, and if you notice, a a, a lawn doesn't flower. We're not mm. encouraging it to flower. We want the blade of grass, but we don't want the inflorescence. And so, as such, there's no there's nothing there for pollinators to feed upon. It's essentially sterile. It's not of any biological value, really. So, I would say lawns probably a waste of time. Um, I think. Do I, what do I think that people are doing wrong? I think um, mostly just being afraid to get to grips with it and do something. I mean, I don't think there's any real wrong way to interact with the soil. I think we probably need to be very careful about um, artificial fertilizers. So mm. I don't know if people really understand how fertilizer works. I just think of it as poop. Well, yes, that would be ideal. So... Uh, once upon a time, 100 years ago, a couple of hundred years ago, all we had were organic manures. And that doesn't mean organic, like they had the green leaf symbol. There was no organic uh, back then. All we mean right. is that manures or fertilizers that came from other living things. So if you have cow manure, say, that's got carbon in it, it's got nitrogen, it's got potassium, and it's got phosphorus. It's also got all the micronutrients. So, um, Phosphorus, nitrogen, potassium, we call them the macronutrients, and everything else is a micronutrient. Very important, but you just need them in smaller amounts. Right. So it used to be that 
those manures would be circulated within the system and farm sizes were relatively small. So uh, you had a limited requirement and you had kind of a, a, something of a balance, right? Phosphorus could be a little bit limiting. So that would be brought in from mined phosphate reserves in places like Turkey. Um, and then if you lived in certain areas like coastal areas, you could be using seaweed fertilizers, things like that. That all changed in the early 1900s. A uh, scientist named Fritz Haber invented the Haber process. Mm -hmm. So essentially we have N2 nitrogen in the atmosphere and plants can't use that unless they're, it's, so it's, it's nitrogen, but it's not accessible. It's not bioaccessible to plants. So we can't use it as a fertilizer. That's why beans, legumes are so good because they have special bacteria, rhizobium bacteria that are able to convert the mineral nitrogen into nitrogen that can be used by the plant. Right. What he did was he devised a process to do that chemically. And then another scientist named Carl Bosch industrialized it. And this was in the early 1900s. Um, Haber has a very mixed legacy. He went on to develop a lot of the gases that were used in trench war warfare in World War One. So chlorine gas, for example, so he's got this very complex legacy, you know. Um, right. But this advent, so, so after, after this development, the Haber-Bosch process, we could now produce mineral nitrogen fertilizer. And that has been responsible for the explosion of agriculture uh, over the past hundred years. Okay. It's inefficient because it's, the plants can only use so much nitrogen. We put on an awful lot of it to the land because we want to produce growth. But unfortunately, that means a lot of losses to our water courses and a huge amount of use of petroleum fuels because that's what's uh, used to fuel the, the Haber-Bosch process in industrial factories, um, which of course is now going to get more and more difficult with oil supply issues and because a lot of the fertilizer is produced in Russia. So uh, we're likely to encounter some fertilizer problems over the next year, at least. Mm -hmm. um, but all of that, <clears throat> to say, the increased reliance on mineral fertilizers is probably responsible for a lot of bad practices. Um, but we, right. can't, we can't easily extricate ourselves from them either because now we're dependent upon this system. So I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. It's we've got ourselves into a bit of a a mess. It's impossible to go forward without creating harms, and it's impossible to pull off without creating harms. Yeah, and I think that there's when it comes to humanity and the earth, there is a incredible amount of disrespect given to the earth, mm -hmm. and it's interesting because we we talked about sabbath and we will we'll get into some of the interesting bits and pieces about how it relates to humans directly later but if you actually look in leviticus 25 the bible tells the the people of israel in their farming cycles to give the land a sabbath to give the land a rest and for one year you let it grow wild you don't you don't prune it you don't trim it you don't till it you let the earth rest and go back to a, a better method of being able to grow stuff and how how i know that there are different ways like people will um change out the crops over the years but i don't think that they rest the ground as often is that something that people do it's in some systems yes but not 
not thoroughly really it's it's it, depending on what way you're farming some people certainly do but it wouldn't be um it wouldn't be standard i don't think and certainly the more industrial the farming is so the more in, in, industrial your system is the more intensive your system is the less likely those rest years are actually happening um right and the other thing to keep in mind is with land leasing there's no incentive for someone who is leasing land to renting lands that is to yeah. you to give a fallow year or even to do best practices in other words you can lease land work it like crazy and then move on and i was actually speaking to someone recently who said well they would never be willing to lease their land to a certain type of horticultural production because they said they just you know treat it very roughly and there's a huge amount of erosion and compaction damage and then they can just leave and lease another parcel of land, but the landowner, the original owner, is left with this degraded and depleted land. Yeah. Whereas when once upon a time, when you know someone was a farmer and it was, the farm was in their family and they were going to pass it on to their kids and so on and so forth, there was a vested interest in preserving it and making sure damage wasn't done because you would be not only, uh, I suppose, scorning the legacy that your forefathers had given to you, but you'd be really harming it for your kids and your grandkids thereafter. You've kind of moved away from that. But again, that's a recent move. You're talking in the past hundred years. These are recent changes. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's interesting to me that the land needs rest. And it was something that was instituted in, you know, the Hebrew scriptures that mm. you need to, and it's something that we need as well. Like we're very tied into this. And so um, one of the things that I find interesting is I have heard more and more people, and I know a lot of it's just kind of people on Twitter kind of telling people to get up, get off their computer, but there's the idea of touch grass or, you know, uh, kids are going to eat dirt and that's good for them. So I'm curious as for, as someone who has done a lot of study into dirt, how good is it for us to actually ingest dirt? Are there, should we be, should we be eating dirt? <laughs> I don't know should we be deliberately eating it, but there is a lot of, um, I suppose there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of um, geophagy is what that's called, and people mm. eating it and eating clay particles in order to kind of mop up toxins within the body. I'm not sure, I'm not familiar with any um, controlled studies of that too, but I do think that we need to get out and like, get our hands dirty and get exposed. I think it's very important for a healthy microbiome, healthy gut, all of that. I'm filthy. I was a filthy child. I was always in the mud, you know, and it didn't do me a bit of harm. So yeah, I'm pretty confident, although I can't point to any studies. Specific. Um, yeah. You know, if it was harmful for us, I don't think we'd have made it this far. Yeah, right. Maybe our dirt right now is a little less healthy than it was, but there was, there was something about, and I, I can't remember. So, but I know you will about Japanese dirt and something someone found in the dirt. Am I remembering that correctly? There was something that, that where someone had dug into the dirt and they had found, I don't know if it was a miracle drug or what, do you know what I'm talking about? I'm actually going blank. I'm afraid. Oh no. There was something, I forget what it is, but Jessica is is there. She she's. I think she's googling Japanese. Yeah, dirt. I'm. Yeah, I'm do googling Japanese dirt miracle cure. Don't <laughs> don't don't leave the miracle. Cure. I just said it. Um, is there something used in medicine? Maybe. 
um, I forget what it was. Just to go back to what you were saying while Jessica's searching for that, what you were saying about the land having a Sabbath. The interesting thing about that, and it will be easy to miss it, is that what God actually promises is that if you are faithful in doing so, that the land will produce enough in the seed see you through the seventh. So it's not that, well, you're going to have to, you know, rein yourself in and you'll be on bread and water for the seventh year. You know, it's a, you, it, yeah. it, it will create greater productivity. And I think that bit is sometimes missed. And that's the important thing. It's not just a rest. It's replenishing. It's getting ready to go again. Yeah, it's like that. Um, there was a, I want to say it was Joseph in the Old Testament. The Pharaoh had a dream yes. of, uh, you know, seven, ago. yeah, se- seven uh, fat cows that that ate were very good, and then there were seven skinny cows who came and ate those fat mm-hmm. cows, and it was like this whole thing of, you know, there's seven, there's going to be these seven years of plenty, and you need to store up for the, and it just that number seven is very important in yeah. biblical writing. It's it's how we view our own days. For we're, we're, Somehow we're still on a lunar cycle when it comes to how our days are laid out because they're seven rather than, you know, a solar cycle of mm-hmm. some sort. Our years are done in solar cycles. Our, our days are and our months are essentially based on lunar cycles. And it's, it's just funny how much, even I've been told and I, I don't, I can't speak to this because I am a man, but even the the female body responds to earth and moon and the way that works together. And it, it seems very tied in to the natural process for when they're giving birth and they, they're able to reproduce and stuff like that. I, I have several people who work in the medical industry and they tell me that um, more women do deliver babies on the full moon cycle and they really? have no idea why that occurs. It just does. Like, I love stuff like that where people are just like, don't know. <laughs> just, and, you know, to me, it's like, okay, the moon has a strong enough gravitational field that it actually pulls the oceans toward it. That's why we have the tides, right? So, like, why wouldn't it affect the liquid within our bodies, too? And so, whatever it does, it makes them pop. <laughs> I, but I, I, I'm not I eating did, dirt today. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have heard, though, some people have said that um, with the con- you guys might have already talked about this, too. I'm sorry if you did that when you consume um, dirt, sometimes there are minerals that you can only get from that. And otherwise, like uh, there are certain like B minerals that you can only get when you're consuming vegetables that have like a little bit of dirt on them. Not that I wouldn't try to not wash every bit of dirt off of my vegetables that I could, but that we have evolved, I guess, over time to like be taking in some of our minerals from the things that we're growing in agriculture. And I was wondering if you knew anything about that. Well, so when, so when we talk about soil, people often don't know what it actually is. Like if you ask someone to define what soil is, they actually often can't. So soil is right. mineral particles. So they're divided into three classes, sand being the largest, silt being the medium and clay being the smallest held okay. together by uh, organic material. So roots, so enzymes, so fungi, so exudates from, from bugs and from, from plant exudates as well, all bound together. So it's a three-dimensional, three-dimensional, dimensional, hard to say, uh, structure. And it is as such, you, 
The soil is considered to be the mineral parts, but it's not really a functioning soil unless it's got the organic component. So if you just had okay. you know, a bucket full of these mineral particles, uh, it wouldn't function like a soil. It would be inert, and it's the organic part that brings the life to it. Depending on what the mineral particles were eroded from, it will have a different amount or a different representation of different minerals. So you have limestone-derived soils, you have sandstone-derived soils, granite-derived, so on and so forth. So depending on um, what sort of a soil your plant is planted in, it's going to be able to take up different nutrients. And also, depending on the nature of your plant, it will take up different nutrients. So, I mean, I think that's one of the really interesting things is we can only think of soil as just the, um, you know, I suppose, a blank page as such that we put our plants onto. But actually, right. its own characteristics will influence very much how the plant performs and what plants do well on it um, right. and what nutrients are there for in those plants. Right. So the composition of how nutrient dense your plant will be depends mm -hmm. heavily on what kind of soil it's grown in and how healthy that soil is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the issues with um, with with a reliance upon mineral fertilizers, uh, such as you'd see the more commercial a farm is or the more intensive it is, the more mineral fertilizers they're likely to use, is it doesn't have so much of the micronutrients. Whereas if you have manure or seaweed or poultry litter or the likes of that, that has all the micronutrients as well in it. It's a lot more complete. It's a lot more about sort of a whole food, if you want to think of it that way. Right, right. When um, I, a lot more people are moving lately toward composting, I've noticed. Yes. Um, is this a complete alternative to something like manure, which I know I heard you talking a little bit about how those kind of things can run into our water systems mm -hmm. and be a major pollutant. I have been um, composting and I've been wondering, is this a healthier alternative perhaps to uh, animal uh, fertilizers and things like that? So I would say both composting and animal fertilizers are excellent sources of fertilizer and they're not so concentrated as the chemical fertilizers that you buy in a sack in the feed store. Um, right, right. All fertilizers can lose nutrients because the water, think of it, if the water is running along the surface of the soil and it encounters right. a nitrogen particle, it doesn't know if that nitrogen particle came from manure or from compost or from a chemical fertilizer. So if that oh, nitrogen sure. fertilizer isn't being used by a plant, the water is quite happy to carry it away. However, your compost or your animal manure is safer as such from a loss perspective because it releases those nutrients a lot more slowly and because it's got so much organic mm. matter in it that yeah. that kind of slows down and moderates the whole process and it stabilizes the soil and it soaks up the water. It's, um, it's just a more, I suppose, slow-release way of getting the nutrients to the plants. That's a good thing. It's also a limitation because if you have a very intensive production system and you say, well, I want to make sure I hit my growth targets and I need this plant to grow at this time, you can't guarantee that that nutrient is going to be released at exactly that moment. So for highly mm. calibrated systems like industrial tillage, for example, they're saying, well, we need X amount of nitrogen available to the plant at X many days. And that's that. They can't 
allow the variability that organic or composts um, bring into it. Um, but going back to what you were saying about composting, it's a fantastic, um, it's a fantastic fertilizer. It's really good. Okay. Charles Dowding is a um, sort of a horticulturist from the UK, and he's all about composting. He does great stuff. Um, I don't, I haven't done much about. I, I kind of, I've got a lot of chickens, and they keep me uh, supplied with manure for my garden. But yeah, composting when it's done correctly seems to be just wonderful. We are um, getting our first group of chickens this April. Um, yeah, I, I come from the city. So all of this is sort of my first dive into any of this stuff. But I am told that um, chicken uh, droppings are some of the best fertilizer and that they, the yes. chickens pay for themselves just in that alone. They do. But I would no. say don't put it directly onto your plants because it's okay. super, super concentrated in phosphorus and quite acidic and you'll burn them. So okay store it all up uh, in like a like a compost bin or something like that and give it oh, six sure. nine months or something like that to kind of rot down and to take the sting out of it because you, you will burn i've burned my plants um, I was okay that's plastic last year <laughs> um would it be okay to put it in with my vegetable scrap or should i have a separate entirely separate i'd say it is probably um okay. maybe if you turned it a few times like mix it but you you will have to let yeah. it rot down a little bit right right I, what i do is in the spring i start a new compost and yeah. then by like september i'll stop adding things to it and then i'll give it all of winter to come oh, down okay. and then that's what i'll use as my comp my um soil compost in the spring and that's so great. i'm i'm hoping that if i add chicken scraps to or chicken droppings to that pile that it's i give it a very long time to turn you know That's occasionally i'll the largest part of it really right I right was, so there's a stables near me and last year i carted like barrels and barrels of horse manure because i got a soil test a chemical test done i had like almost mm -hmm. no phosphorus in my soil really really depleted because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was just an old field basically so i dug i spent all last summer digging in barrels of horse manure and when you turn the spade in it now it's so it's like a different soil it's it's light it's fluffy it's full of worms like i nice. think it's going to be good if it would ever stop raining it's been raining for weeks yeah yeah <laughs> i've Go been ahead, thinking about so so one thing i i hate mowing the grass um but beyond that i've been thinking about even though it's a rental property like it's still doing some things to make my my yard a little better and so i was thinking about getting some clover and kind of oh, seeding cool. that in the backyard and, and over the front yard and kind of you know giving something for for you know the bees to to, to mess with and you know you don't have to mow it very much because yeah. it's clover it doesn't grow that high and um i was wondering the, where we live we have a an extremely high sand content in our in our yard okay. and so it's it's there's mud when, when it rains there's mud it's not like i'm from alabama and i'm used to clay and this isn't clay it's like this what is this stuff and so like if there's a high sand content and i know that the i've been looking into clover because i know that it it takes here relatively well um and you know, there's some other stuff that I might I, like. I hear daisies also do it too, so I thought maybe I just mix daisy seeds and clover together and let see what that does. But 
if I have sandy soil and I don't have any chickens, and I'm not going to have any chickens, uh, how do you think that, what do you think would be a good way to make this yard a little better? Okay, well, I actually think clover is probably a really good strategy because clover is what we would call a nitrogen-fixing plant. So it's one of those plants that I was talking about earlier that's able to pull nitrogen from the atmosphere and return it to the soil. So if you can use mm. clover to provide a sort of an internal fertilizer uh, cycling. So that's probably a very, very good plant to go for. Um, what mm-hmm. I would say is clover typically has problems at establishment so what you want to make sure is that there isn't what we what I would call a thatch, so a lot of dead grass material at the base of your sward. So if you go out into your garden, right, and, and put your hands down and, and separate out the grass, like you're splitting hair, and see mm. if there's kind of dead uh, grass material at the bottom, that's no good. You'll have to kind of scarify that out if you're planting clover. But if there isn't, then you can probably... Just there is. It's just mostly thing. sand then you're probably okay. Clover's probably a good way to go. Um, I don't know how dry it is there. That might be a bit challenging for it. Um, well, it's very wet. It's a very wet place. Okay. Sub, yeah. it's, it's subtropical. Yeah. Clover's probably a really good way to bring up your overall fertility, and it's brilliant. It's really, really excellent for the bees and pollinators. But this is something that I don't fully understand about uh, uh, America is – your homeowners associations, they seem to be quite restrictive about what you, that's not the case here. Yes. It's kind of, you know. When we bought our house, when we bought our house, we specifically looked for a neighborhood that didn't have an HOA because um, I immediately started allowing Clover to take over for Mm -hmm. the lawn. And our lawn, which is about an acre in the front, um, Mm -hmm. is almost like 75% Clover now. If I had been in an HOA situation, that would we would have been fined for doing that. Um, yeah, now I can't get my head around that. That's astonishing. I yeah, it's um, so you know people have to start choosing not to live in these HOA neighborhoods, which can be the fee for an just to be in an HOA neighborhood, not counting your mortgage, can be three hundred to two thousand oh dollars just gosh. for the privilege of belonging to one of these usually gated, they have a pool kind of situation. Um, but, you know, if you don't have an HOA, you don't get all of that nice stuff, but you're allowed to have clover in your front yard. So that's just a choice that people are going to have to start making um, when they choose where they live. I, how, it seems kind of like they're hijacking private property. I don't know how that's... Um... Yeah. It's very it's, much. It's not surely like, it's not a and it's usually or. it's usually run by a group of people who live in the neighborhood. So you have these sort of like old Karen type women <laughs> who are deciding for everyone else. Okay, we all have the white mailbox. You have to have the white mailbox too. And I, I understand wanting a cohesive, nice looking neighborhood where everybody keeps care of their lawn. I understand that for property value. But at the same time, these HOA organizations can get a little bit um, authoritarian. And um, we've, we we have a case here in um, Georgia. A lot of people from Georgia know about the chicken man of Roswell. It was a man who had had chickens on his property for all of his life. He was an elderly man. Mm. And the, the way that things grew up around him suddenly there were regulations against chickens. Well, um, it ended up being such a war between the chicken man of Roswell and the city of Roswell um, that it, 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 ended, it ended very tragically 
for for the man, unfortunately. Oh, no. um, they have since revised a lot of the laws in the local area because this was such a human tragedy that um, a, a lot more places allow for the keeping of chickens now. Mm. But that if anybody wants like a sort of case study in the way that homeowners associations or um, local governments will harm the ability of people to have their own self-sufficient lifestyle, the Chicken Man of Roswell is a story to look yeah it happened a few years ago everywhere everyone around where i live knows this story but other people should look into it um the city of roswell has a lot to answer for as far as this poor old man being mm. driven to his death for the crime of wanting to keep his chickens which he had always had and that's just something to know so um but fortunately like the water barrel thing it did end up changing the laws you guys may have heard of um it's illegal to collect rainwater in America. Yes. Um, that was actually a case from 2015 where a guy had a three acre pond on his property that wow. was not being kept very well, to be fair to the, the regulators. It was not being kept very well. It was kind of a hazard. And they ended up, um, I'm, I, I'm not exactly sure what they ended up making him do, but they changed some regulations that said that people weren't allowed to collect their own rainwater in water retention ponds. Okay. And this kind of got blown up toward everybody saying, oh, you're not allowed to have water barrels. Well, there were a few towns where that was the case, but this was such a blown up situation, such a popularized national story yeah. that since 2015, a lot of those towns have since changed their regulations, including Colorado, which had some of the most stringent water collection regulations, they have since passed bills saying that, no, no, you can in your own, you know, 100 gallon, 150 gallon um, blue water barrels, you're definitely allowed to collect rainwater off of your roof. So a lot of people have taken that story and kind of run with it. I recommend checking your local regulations because a lot of them in the last five, five to seven years have changed. Mm. And so you can now collect rainwater for the most part everywhere in the United States, except for what, Arizona. What I had thought was that that prohibition was to do with groundwater recharge. In other words, if people yeah. were collecting vast amounts of water, they would be inhibiting groundwater recharge. Makes sense in very arid areas of the country. But then I figured, well, if people, yeah, totally, if it's on an industrial level, but surely people are like people's roofs are only a very small square footage mm -hmm. relationally. So how could uh, like rain barrels truly be making an impact? Right. Unless absolutely everyone was doing it. And even at that, it seemed impossible. They weren't really for the most part. And that's why I think a lot of these um, city councils got together realized, hey, there are these regulations on the books so we should probably remove them because mm -hmm. um, the more people who actually like collect and retain water for watering their gardens, watering their lawns, that's less of a strain on the water collection systems. Like where the water that's coming from your hose has been through a water reclamation and cleaning process that's done usually by a city or a state. Mm -hmm. um, if you're, you don't need that though for it to water your lawn. You don't need that to water your garden. You can use what they call gray water. Yeah. And so it's perfectly fine to collect uh, water from your roof to water your garden with it. Um, Personally, I didn't like the um, the tar paper that a lot of the roofs around here are made out of does leave pieces, oh, sure. little small pieces of rubber and tar in the water. Mm -hmm. So we actually built our own system out of a metal corrugated roof 
that oh, slides cool. down into a, um, I just like put up a little wood structure, put a metal corrugated roof and that water goes into our water barrels. It no longer has those bits of grit in it. Mm -hmm. But um, as long as you're not drinking that water, that it has so many uses around the garden and you're not actually like pulling from the water reclamation that the city um, does and can, you know, that can actually be a problem for, especially for arid um, areas, as you were saying, like Arizona and places sure. like that. It is, it is an issue if people are um, parts preventing. Of the, parts of the Midwest, like the Oglala aquifer and that is, they're struggling to meet the population demands at the moment in a big way. Right. Um, which is, it's very controversial trying to deal with that because you've got these vying demands on water. It's a, it's a mm -hmm. tricky one. Yeah, I, I think the harvesting is really a, a great idea. And, and yeah. I presume, you know, if you did want to drink it, you can always filter it if you had a Berkey or the likes of that. So the, the websites that you read about how to do this will always tell you you probably shouldn't drink this water. Oh, right. um, the water that comes from your faucet does have a lot of processes that are done to it to ensure mm. that it's healthy for you to drink. Um, if you were going to drink your reclaimed water, I would just definitely make sure you learn how to do that right. Sure. Because water can kill you if it's dirty, sure. you know, if it's polluted. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons that water might not be safe to drink, even if it looks and smells fine. Yeah, so sure. that would be my only recommendation is, yeah, regulators are often over concerned with safety, but um, this is one area where you don't want to play games. If you're going to yeah. use reclaimed water, learn as much as you can about how to actually clean water. And that's just for the audience at home. I don't want any of you guys to meet meet the uh, Montezuma's revenge. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Water will attack you. you, you. Water will attack you. I don't know. Um, being from Ireland, are you familiar with the term Montezuma's revenge? Yes, we are. I think okay, all right. <laughs> universal thing. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Just, we you know, have, when you visit certain... Have... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, when you visit certain places, you just, you know, want to stick to bottled water. That's all. <laughs> sure. Right. <laughs> what were you going to say, Sarah? I was just saying we have our fair share of kind of shady fast food food restaurants as well. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> this also qualifies for that phrase for sure. <laughs> so one of the things we talked about in the email was um, I, it's Ireland's a very interesting place when it comes to Christianity because it's one of the only places that you can think of in modern times within the last 50 years that have had like uh, apparently some big fights over different Christian sects. Oh, you I'm curious. <laughs> do what? Oh, you heard about that? Yeah, I heard about that. I, I think you too had a song about it at one point. Yeah. Um, and so it was funny because I was like, you know, we're, we're having you on for our St. Patrick's Day episode. And I'm like, I'm curious about where this stuff is. And you're like, well, I'm not really in the Protestant camp or in the Catholic camp. And I'm, and I'm just curious, um, can I ask you about Bloody Sunday and all of this st stuff that happened? Because I'm, it's a very, it's very different here. Um, well, look, I'm, to be honest, the whole history, it's very, very complicated because yeah. you've got a, a religious layer to it and then a, um, a sort of a political layer to yeah. it as well. And to be honest, I get it all terribly mixed up as such it's, yeah. it's it's such a complicated story and it's not as um 
it's not even as clear cut because you have then because of the, the relationship to England, you have people who are on one religious side, but a different cultural side. And so I, I don't know that I can explain it very well. And I don't know that many people really could. Um, yeah. What I'd say is that now it's... Um, has it calmed down? Yes, it absolutely okay. has. And I think people don't really uh, realise that it has to the degree that it has. But we still... Uh, it still is quite distinct that there are Catholics and Protestants, but it, there is yeah. peace. Uh, there's peace in the North and there's peace between the two religious groups. Um, but it's certainly, it's a very dark and it's an unfortunate legacy as such. Yeah. Certainly when I was growing up, it was before or during the peace process. So that you still would hear of bombings and yeah. terrible things in the North and along the border region. Um, and it's very strange to think that that really wasn't that long ago yeah. in living memory and not old living memory, like recent living memory. It, yeah. it's, it's quite shocking. And um, if you're like me and you're just a plain old Christian, like a Bible yeah. reading Christian, I'm, I'm not a Catholic and I'm not a Protestant. If, here, if, people, if you're not a Catholic, people often presume you're a Protestant. Yeah. But I'm not, because I think, well, why would I call myself, if I was to call myself Protestant, I would be, again, identifying myself in opposition to or relationship to uh, the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church. But actually, yeah. my relationship is between me and Christ. It's nothing to do with anybody else or any other organization. And it does say that we're to be called by Christ's name. So why would I put any other label on myself? Yeah. If you say that, well, you like you're crazy. Well, no, and, and it, the 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 way people talk here is is very similar because it's like even Jessica is ortho, is uh, part of the Orthodox mm -hmm. Church, and so like we'll be talking, and I've told her before, um, I, I I don't really connect with the word Protestant. I do in so far as I'm not Catholic, but it's it, it seems especially within, and I, I talked to Monica about this, I think on our show last week for a second, um, but. Uh, a lot of times when I hear the word Protestant used to describe me, it's from a Catholic who doesn't like me. <laughs> and yeah. so like I've told Jessica in the past, you know, if you want to call me Protestant, that's fine because it's, you know, you're making a distinction that, you know, I'm not part of the liturgical, um, you know, uh, a liturgical church with apostolic claims, but that's not, you know, what, what I'm part of. And I understand that like when Jessica says Protestant, that's fine. I know what she's saying, but it's like, I've heard it more times than not as kind of like, like through gritted teeth, I'm Protestant. And so <laughs> I'm like, I don't really, I mean, yeah, I'm glad that, you know, the Martin Luther was like, hey, don't try to sell salvation to people. Like, that's great. The, Re the Reformation was, a, was a neat, there was reform needed, but I'm like, I'm not, I don't really gel with the word Protestant. And, you know, it's hard to, and it's hard. It's actually hard for me to describe because someone asked me the other day, I think it may, it may have been in our conversation where I said I'm kind of non-denominational. And here, that is almost like you're claiming a denomination because their non-denominational means something. And I'm just like, no, I'm just not, I'm just not tied into a particular faith tradition within Christianity that is with most of them tied to a certain man. Yeah, exactly. I mean... I, no, I feel entirely the same way. And I think that's very clear in 
the um, in acts and in the letters as well. You yeah. know, well, I don't follow Paul and I don't follow Philip or I don't follow whoever, you know, it was, it's not about any of those. There's only one man that it's about and that's Christ. So I, I never saw, even as a kid, I couldn't get on my head around, why would I call myself anything other than that? Well, yeah, and it's like, I have I have friends who, are, who I've talked to who are like, oh, well, and it's no offense to your belief set if you're in that, I don't share it, but like people say, I'm a Calvinist. And I'm like, it's just really strange to me that you're using another man's name to describe your own set of beliefs mm. or how you view mm -hmm. the Bible. That's weird to me. I'm a Wesleyan. I'm, and I'm, I'm like, you know, Paul kind of said something about this, about yeah. him and Apollos and how, and that church that he was writing a letter to did not like Paul. And that's mm. why he was writing that letter. <laughs> So I think that if you ask a lot of the people who they'll say, I'm Methodist, I'm Presbyterian, I'm this, that, and the other, if you ask them to delineate what the theological differences between those groups are, they probably couldn't do it. Just I'm mm -hmm. just speaking for like the nominal yeah. person who goes to church every Sunday. They probably go to that church because their parents went to that church or yeah. it's the closest church to their house. Sure. And there's yeah. not a lot of like theological um, delineation going on there. But this I, is my I, I experience just... at least. I just always thought it was weird when I was younger, when I read that thing that Paul said about him and Apollos, and I was just like, how is this any different than saying that you're Calvinist or Wesleyan or Lutheran? How is it different? Mm -hmm. Because it, either we're all under Christ or we're not. And that's the, the important distinction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, I don't know, maybe people want or, you know, I don't know, to, um, to package it up somehow and then, yeah. Or to embellish it or whereas really the only thing that matters is salvation and everything else is it's, un, it's unnecessary it's, or harmful even I think I, I don't I can't seem to uh, grasp the reasoning for it but it's yeah. we see it everywhere There's, it's the this, these factions are very pervasive so there must be I don't know something I'm missing some reason that people are well, gravitating towards this but I, I can't fathom it well the in, the thing that, about with me is you know I think that there's a beautiful diversity in worship that comes from people having these different styles of worship and I think that's really yeah, cool yeah. there are people who worship differently and having all a, a space for different people is awesome that's great but it's just my own the only thing that I have is when there's this non um, non-primary theological position that people center themselves around and then inevitably call someone else a heretic for not agreeing with them. Like, yeah. that's where I'm like, right. let's chill out. Let's, let's, let's major on the major and the minors we can deal with later. Like we, if we agree in Christ and Christ crucified, the, his resurrection and the, uh, there's so much the gospel in. And it's like, that's another thing I've been, I've read a book on, I'm reading another book on is how differently the gospel has been viewed since the Reformation, because it's almost uh, based purely on the decision and on the sal salvation moment, rather than the whole story of the gospel, which is all of what is written of in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the whole history of Israel as um, fulfilled through Jesus and the, the eventual resurrection of us all and the, the bringing us back to the concept of that Eden of being um, where heaven and earth become one and we have we go back to that place like there's this whole story of the gospel and people are focused on I don't know what whether or not John Calvin was right yeah, it's not <laughs> besides the point really 
Well, I, I have a surprise for you. I don't know if you know about this surprise, but I'm going to go ahead and bring that surprise in. Hey! Hey, hey girl! Hi, guys. I mean, it is St. Patrick's Day, right? Is it? <laughs> I hope so, because I dug Third, this out of yes. the hamper of my son who has Down syndrome, so I'm making some sacrifices, all right? I feel Monica! I really want to thank you for subbing in for me while I was out. That's well, so awesome. It was a pleasure. And I'm so glad to see you back to your old self. I Pretty much it. for the most part. <laughs> I and, love and you it. know, yeah. and you know, Jessica loves being able to tell people, well, when some when I had to be off, the only person okay. who could sub for me was the wonderful Monica Perez. Thank you. I do <laughs> I enjoy being your understudy. It is an honor <laughs> and a privilege. But I don't see, I didn't listen because it's very early here. That is probably why we're all so bright eyed and bushy tailed. But uh, <laughs> so I haven't been listening for the past hour and I don't want to repeat what you're talking about or interrupt the flow, but I have some specifics for Sarah. Okay. Yes. Let's do it. Are you ready? Okay. All right. So um, I had a few questions. I want to know what people eat and how they celebrate St. Patrick's Day in Ireland. I've been told that the corned beef and cabbage thing is like pizza for Italians. It's not real. Yeah, corned beef isn't that big of a deal here. And I was amazed that in America people think it is. I don't know where that came from. I don't. I can tell you. I know Are this. Are you really? Really? Where? I've never heard of it. I've never heard the origin of it. So the origin of corned beef and cabbage as a St. Patrick's Day staple and an Irish staple in America comes from the fact that those who came to America from Ireland typically were a poorer people or they were indentured servants. And so once they came over into America, had a little bit more freedom, a little bit more, um, what's the word, um, you know, when you can grow Financial financially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Suddenly they're in this place where they can afford corned beef which is something that they did like in ireland but couldn't afford in ireland and so they started eating it especially on saint patrick's day as a nod back to the homeland which then all of the americans who love drinking were like hey let's add that to this let's make this another another blowout that we can have in yeah. the middle of the year right in the middle of lent where we can have some kind of fun but so don't there has to be something to the corned beef thing though maybe it it has something to do with the traveling over the ocean because corn corn beef is a preserve is a preserved beef. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. so it wouldn't be something you'd eat where you have cows, and I've seen cows in Ireland. It's it's yeah, it's it's, it's American Irish. Right, so right. We're, we're basing it off of American Irish people who were like, "Hey, right, I want this beef," why rather than it, be it being corn? something in a. It's good. I, I, I don't think, know. It is good. We, we would think of corned beef as being kind of more of an English thing. Like we'd eat it, but it wouldn't think be, like, so here bacon and cabbage would be more typical. Yeah. The Irish bacon, mm. right? Yeah. Thick bacon. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, what we do on Paddy's Day, mostly people drink. Uh, yeah. And there's parade, uh, which mm. I never go to because it's chaotic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> mostly drinking is the main thing. And people would have an Irish fry which is, depends where you are regionally, but it's sausages, bacon, well, what we call bacon, we call rashers, yeah. uh, which is a little mm -hmm. bit different to American bacon. Um, eggs, mushrooms, uh, what else? Fried tomato. That's a pudding. fry? It I mean, sounds like an Irish version of a, of, a, of a... 
Boiling. Very similar to a full English, right? Yes, exactly. But right, we okay. call the full Irish here. But I'm not oh, really right. clear on what the difference is. But I will say, if Beans. you're from Northern Ireland, they do something very special, which is they have soda bread and they butter it each side mm. and they fry it. And that stuff is amazing. Ooh, Ooh I have a fantastic recipe for Irish soda bread. Fantastic. So, but I never thought of frying it on both sides uh, instead of, oh, that's good. I do that. I do that yeah, for some stuff, really like a good grilled cheese, but oh my gosh. Okay. So yeah, I'm going to fry Irish soda bread. Oh, that'll just take it <laughs> to a whole new level. Sounds great. But you know, if you have like an Irish fry, you practically have to go to bed after that. Like it's exhausting. <laughs> but it sounds like breakfast. Oh, it's heavy going though. It's big. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. But no blood pudding. Yes. So black what? pudding. Oh, I love that. Oh, yeah. Black pudding, black pudding. Yeah. There's a place in the west of Ireland called Clonakilty. Uh, it's in Cork. And Clonakilty black pudding would be the best. Like that's kind of the top. Okay. top. I'll have to check it out. I don't, because... like it. I don't eat blood. Probably. Oh, I love it. And anyway, we're from, I know you can't tell by looking at me, but my family is from Mayo. Well, and... I can tell. You can tell. No lips, yes. high cheekbone. <laughs> So, yes. West Coast dark hair yes. Is that true? Is it true it's that it was the Spanish Armada? true. And yes. if you go along the coast of of Galway, there's Spanish Spanish Point, Spanish Arch. There's a lot of references to that geographically, which tends to suggest that there is some truth to it. All right. Well, Cam suggested. Right. Cam suggested that people who look like me. Now, my mother had blue eyes, so I got my brown eyes from my Syrian grandma. But other than that, I look like my mother, and she had black hair and everything like that. So, but Cam was suggesting that we were the normal ones, and you guys were the Viking invaders. Hmm. So it well, Manus invaded the the uh, fair ones. It's that the fair ones invaded the Gaelic Gaul French people. Yeah, well, you know, so there's definitely, see, there's a real mix. And if you go across the country, it's remarkable how different people look. And Donegal, which is the top western corner, that's Dunnegal, which is Fort of the Foreigner. So there's definitely been successive inputs of people yeah, from all over. That's Viking. Yeah. And Dublin and are they, totally are the they, Viking city. Are there more redheads and blondes in Donegal? Um, Historically. You know, I think there probably are. There's a lot of redheads as you go to the west of the country and less so in the east. All right. Ah, interesting. Well, in this is the other thing that's not to forget is that when Ireland was ruled by England, they forcibly moved people from one part right. of the country, like to hell or to oh, sure. and get out and go west where the land sucks. Um, so that has a kind of a mixing effect, too. And if the land sucks, that's what would have been open to the Vikings. Sorry, Cam, I keep stepping. Well, up. no, I was just going to say, and also if you look at city names in Ireland, mm. there are a lot of city names that are Viking, like Dublin, yeah. Cork, Limerick, Waterford. Like all of these are yes. Viking names of cities. Mm. You know, the Waterford mascot is the Viking, which I think is really strange. It's like they came here and kidnapped people. Why is yeah. that <laughs> an odd mascot? And like that sounds like it's it's a legacy. Yeah. Because, I mean, I mean, not just like a callback, but like that it was something that was top of mind a very long time ago. Because well, I'm yeah, sure Waterford absolutely. established their their symbol, you know, hundreds of years ago, probably. Yeah. Well, you know, the other really interesting thing as you move along kind of the southeast coast 
is you have a lot of French influence. So you have, the, it's called the Norman way and you'll have a lot of Norman style forts yeah, right. and um, a lot of Norman style names. So Esmond, Redmond, uh, Devereux, um, things like that, Pettit, things like that, uh, all French style names because they had uh, a foothold here, mostly so they could find And that would be in the South or South, East, That's like where east, we, yeah. yeah, right, right. Nice. It's a really accessible port. So right. Yeah. Coming over here to have a fight. Yeah. Yet Ireland has a history of being hard to conquer. I always thought because of its decentralized kind of, um, yeah, not govern, yeah, government. Yeah. Well, we, originally there wasn't really a, there was no, I mean, allegedly there was a hiking, but I think that was a notional thing. People were very tribal and very separate. You know, but I suppose we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Obviously, it did get under English rule for a very, very long time. Um, who was the guy who was, I have too many things. I'll let Cam go. I was just going to say, I have a theory about whiskey and people who desire freedom. I think that if you look at whiskey, the best whiskey you can find are from people who were oppressed, who fought for their freedom. Who had, okay. who, start, who started whiskey? Weather. Who started whiskey? Scotland. Scotland invented it. Ireland bettered it, and America perfected it. <laughs> because you got you, scotch. A lot of okay. people love scotch. A peated scotch is nice, but this is the this is some of the Ooh. best whiskey I've ever had in my life, and it's wow. an Irish twelve-year Redbreast whiskey. It's so good. But I'm telling you, bourbon in the, out of the United States, out of those frontiersmen in Kentucky, they know wow. what they're doing. So it, I mean, maybe it gives you courage and, you know, gets you pissed off a little bit. It I'm certainly you, has that effect. <laughs> I, name, name a good whiskey and you're going to be naming a, a, a place that at the point of them using and making that whiskey were under hmm. other rule that they, they tried or, you know, successfully took off of them. I'm just saying Interesting. whiskey and freedom are intertwined. I will say that I definitely appreciate how um, in Appalachia, which is the area that I'm from, the Scotch and Irish poor definitely came in and settled this mountainous area. And from that, their own very unique culture that is both a blend of the old way of life and the American way of life kind of grew up in Appalachia sort of sequestered to itself. And so things like bluegrass music, for example, definitely comes from like that drum and whistle style of music that comes from Scotland and Ireland. And they kind of brought it over here and made it into bluegrass. And so I, I like I appreciate that sort of very microcosm of culture that's a blend of the two things. Um, that's where my family comes from. So I'm not, you know, like I have Irish heritage, for example, like my, my people were the Macaulay's. I don't know where they're from. I couldn't name a town, but they came here, they settled down, they were poor, they lived in the mountains, they mined coal. Um, and so I, I'm a blend of two things. I, I'm a blend of that European world and of the American world and what was sort of given uh, the opportunities given to people who otherwise didn't have opportunity before mm -hmm. and kind of made their own way, made their own culture, their own food, their own music. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. So I think um, when I, I, as an American, am celebrating St. Patrick's Day, that's kind of the thing that's in my mind is those Irish who came over here and settled and made sort of the, the new world their own. That's one of the things I think re really cool about America is how 
it's it, people have kept both their history and are fully American as well at the same time. Yeah. It's, you know, they've, they've treasured what was good or about the past, but they're not, they don't seem to be hamstrung by it or caught up in that they're fully, this is, yes, this is where we are now and this is how we're going forward. And it's a very positive way, uh, I think, to move forward through the world. I, yeah. I think it's interesting that Cam pointed out that it was the lower classes who come over the way Australia has that like penal colony history. We have the trash history. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I don't like owning that, but I'm going to have to. My proof of concept over the whiskey thing, and I don't know if you'll find this interesting or not, but um, there is the recently I've been hearing a lot of whiskey lovers talk about a whiskey coming from a specific country that is very good. Can you guess what country it is? Oh. Yes. <laughs> is it gin from Ireland? No, no. It's it's whiskey from Taiwan. <laughs> who is currently That's, mine was more relevant. fighting fighting for their <laughs> their independence from China. I'm oh, telling you. Oh, that is proof of concept, isn't it? I'm telling oh, you. Oh, it is. It is. So Sorry. the minute the minute Sorry, a people nice. start making whiskey, Watch they're it. like, let's throw off the oppressors. They That's have to good. go. But I do want to, I do feel like I have to give a bona fide shout out to gin coming out of Ireland. It is. It's, it's okay. a big trend at the moment. It's, uh, cool. it's the it, thing. There is great gin. I can't pronounce it, but there's some <laughs> really, really good gin coming out of Ireland. Um, maybe I'll give it to you the show notes, Cam. I have two more questions before I go. Yes, that's more questions. Okay. Um, so just, uh, I think it's funny that my uh, heritage is the malarkeys. I like <laughs> it. Yeah, very good. <laughs> my mother's name is So, um, and my grandfather used to, every year, and I did it once, but not every year, climb Crow Patrick. I've never done Crow Patrick. You've never it's done it. No, I haven't. But I've done all of the morns, and I did. Um, oh, can't think of it. I did the highest mountain in Ireland last year. I'm trying to take off all the mountains bit by bit, but there's a well, lot of them. Crow Patrick is first for us because you're supposed to do it to atone for your sins. It's a pilgrimage, isn't it? Oh. Yeah. And my grandfather used to do it in bare feet. Yikes! I hear people still do that. That's tough, though. He must have been bad, but he did come over <laughs> to America when he was sixteen as a stowaway. So I'm not exactly sure what he was up to before that, or how many times <laughs> he went back. So maybe, maybe that was legend. He was truly full of malarkey. Like I always, or whatever. He had tall tales, like you wouldn't believe. So I always thought that the word malarkey came from him personally. So <laughs> it could be. It could be. Um, it could be. So also, I wanted to know if the, you know, I have not been able to put my finger on the name of this guy, but he was actually arrested or framed for murder after some of his investigation on how the English actually, it was like a holomodor. It was a, it was an English intentional starvation of yeah. the Irish that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really a, uh, a famine so much, or it was an enforced famine. Yeah. Do you know the guy who did you are you aware of the story of a guy who was framed and persecuted for that in Ireland? No, I don't know that story. I can't but I find do it. Know that this um the theory that the famine was enforced, that wasn't the story that we were told at school. We were told, <laughs> you know, there's the blight and all of that. Yeah. And then only in maybe the last 10 years, people have started saying, mm, no, it looks like actually a lot of stuff was being exported and 
yes, to Jamaica for the slave for the you know whatever if they were still slaves I don't know but it was for the plantations. That's what they say. So I, mm-hmm. I you know I could believe that there could be some truth to it. Uh, certainly. Yeah, I do. And then um, I had one more question, which is, I don't know if it's, I'm not going to call it egotistical or narcissistic, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) there's a word for it. I am really curious to know how you found us. How I found you. Ah, very good. So uh, I liked Sam Tripoli. So I listened, which got me listening to Ricky Verandas. And then the two of those had um, Union of the Unwanted. And you were on and what I thought was really interesting, um, not mean to flatter you at all, but you said very little and then you'd come in with something very incisive. And I thought, oh, well, I want to listen to more of that. And then, of course, down the rabbit hole that led me to the oh, that's report and then the bad ones. And, uh, well, that's so awesome. Everyone getting tired because I, every, uh, listening to me because I was, saying, I was listening to this podcast. And they're like, oh, you're talking to your friends. And I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing because I actually do use that. I, that's intentional on the Union of the Unwanted that mm-hmm. there's a lot of people up there and yeah, they'll definitely good. give you one or two turns. But I never want to hog it. And I always want to make sure that I use my turn wisely. And you can tell it's intentional because my normal style is just to, is the fire hose. So just blast <laughs> nonstop. So uh, I'm glad that that was effective. And uh, I think it's it's so, um, don't you don't you find it? I, well, I guess, I mean, I think I know the answer. I'm not sure we talked about this before, but I think it's, interesting or serendipitous that we formed more than just uh you know kind of that relationship of just listening to podcasts that we actually formed really us too like you know cam and jessica you know we've just formed relationships that it i mean i'm not saying that tech is worth it but this is an upside to the limited hangout of the internet (laughs) yeah absolutely you know i think it's very difficult sometimes to meet people in modern society because everyone's working so hard, you know, and uh, people don't have so much time for each other. But I, one of the interesting things about podcasts is that, uh, for me, I'm just a listener, you know, you spend a lot of time with people and you kind of feel like you have a degree <laughs> of a relationship or an understanding of them because you've listened to them for hours upon hours. So, you know, and then I think, the whole Patreon thing, and I think it's a great way if you feel that you resonate with people or with a group of people that you can actually get in touch and make these wider connections and reach out. It's 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 been absolutely, uh, I suppose, life changing for me in a way because you can make friends and and have genuine relationships with like minded people around the world, and so it's a two way pipeline as opposed to television which is always a one-way pipeline. It's giving stuff to you, but all it's taking is your attention. There's no back and forth at all. So yeah, I totally agree. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, one of the real beneficial things um, yeah. that I just didn't see coming because, you know, I, I kind of always, when you know, I was growing up, you know, the internet was only kind of becoming something that people might act like average people would actually use. And like, oh my gosh, like the internet's full of like, scary people and you know you wouldn't come can't put information out there and like never give out your name and 
all of that. And now it's less of a frightened place. I oh yeah. Well that could be a big old trap, but, and I have to yeah. say, I've had, I've had podcasts with other podcasters, like people I listen to or like, you know, subject matter experts I've heard on many other podcasts and you think, you know, them yeah. and you know, you find out that you were wrong when you try to tell a joke that not only they don't laugh at, but deeply offends them. And you're like, Oh <laughs> shit. I thought we were, but of course you don't. Right. Got and, it. And, and that's, what's <laughs> so cool. is like, it's, with, it's just like with, with you and Binkley, I know that I can throw whatever stupid crap that's in my mind at you and it's fine. And I'm like, that's why it's fun to have you and him on the show is because it's also a time for you to decompress yeah, and just totally. like have conversations you want to have without being like, okay, so I'm the subject matter expert on blank, <laughs> which but, is another funny thing about our relationship is you found you, we connected because the, the Vixen, the voluntary Vixens had, a, had you on an episode yeah. and I edited no, it. No, it was Dave. It was first but, Dave. Dave, who used to broadcast from his Drive closet. time, Dave, right? Yeah. Yeah. But what's funny is I, I had never listened to the propaganda report before having you on the show. It was just because I had put out those um, red pills and you would yeah. like them. And then we, we so yes. it was funny because when Jessica was first on an episode with you, she was like, oh man, I get to talk with Monica Perez. And I'm like, oh, yeah. in, my, in my mind, you were just always my friend. For, yes. For context, well, Mo yeah. Monica was on the radio when I was a teenager and I listened I to her. I don't think on that's w true. I was you were the on the radio. <laughs> I just got on the radio in 2011. How old am I? Hold on, let me do some math here. Okay, maybe maybe my early twenties. Well, I wasn't then, a I was, I'm not trying to out your age, but I, I need to defend my own. I was I was I was mentally a teenager, probably is what I mean to say. <laughs> but I remember listening to Monica on the radio. So when I actually had the opportunity to be on a podcast with her, I literally called everyone I ever met. Oh, that's so I called cool. my mom. I called oh my, my aunt. God, I'm that's like, so cool. I'm going to be on a podcast with Monica Perez. And so then my aunt went and told her church lady friends <laughs> oh. that I was going to be on the radio because oh, I used to have a radio show because you used to have a radio Aww. show. And I was like, no, mom, tone it down. Like, <laughs> No, no, it's okay. I just, and you don't want the church people funny. listening to the podcast. I've gotten complaints. Like I, yeah. I used to love your show. And now, you know, with the F-bombs, I'm like, occasionally an F-bomb is warranted. Not that many. No. Well, this is me trying to go for zero. You know, yeah. I don't think I swear a lot, but all Irish people swear. So oh, every yeah. yes, and talk too fast. So every time I go to America, and I haven't been obviously the past two years, but every time I've gone in my head on the plane, I'm going, don't swear, talk slow, oh. don't swear, talk slow to try and train myself. No, no, no. One, we don't judge. We don't judge. <laughs> The cool ones don't anyway. Interesting. Very interesting. So, all right. I am going to um, see if that's everything I had on my list. And I didn't want to hijack your show for more than 10 minutes. So I feel like 25 is about what could have been expected. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to well, say goodbye unless you want wait. to say something else to me. I was just going to say, I, I'm i not going to ask Sarah at the end of this episode what her favorite thing about me is. But I do <laughs> want to ask her what her favorite thing about Monica is. What is my favorite thing about Monica? Much. That's too much. <laughs> no, I think my favorite thing is just putting a, always trying to put a, a positive spin and look at the bright side of things because sometimes there's not so much in the news that's bright to look at. And I think you, you and yeah. Brad make a genuine effort to do so. 
And uh, I, I really appreciate that. It's really uplifting and really encouraging. And the other thing oh. is you really, really love people. Because I noticed the way you phrased yeah. something once and I it said, remember that. You said you didn't, you were talking about stuff going on and you were busy and things were hectic. And you said, there's a lot of people to care about. And I thought it was interesting that you didn't say a lot of people to care for, because that would imply only the responsibility side of things. You said care about. And I thought that was a really, really lovely thing. So on a personal oh. note, I think you must be a really caring wow. person. Wow. And wow. That's, I'm overly moved by it. sent me a t-shirt, which was very kind and caring in itself. Oh, oh. yes, I did. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. I love, I love. But the first one I was going to, uh, now I feel embarrassed, but the first one I can attribute to a thank you. Um, uh, the first one I was going to attribute to my Irish mother who she is an insomniac and a voracious radio show consumer. So when I went on the air as a libertarian and a contrarian to everybody, she would say, I am not going to listen to this if you don't keep it positive. And I said, Ma, what's positive? She says, if there's nothing positive, don't do it. Don't do it then. I can't take it. There's no, you don't, we don't need more of that. And I was like, okay. Yeah. So it took years, it took years to really get the hang of it. And now I realize that you just have to keep your priorities straight, which is why I love you, Sarah. <laughs> well, it's mutual. Yes. All right. Well, on that note, I'm going to leave on the high note. Bye, guys. Thanks for having me. Bye. We All love right. Monica. She's great. <laughs> that's she was like can i pop in i just love sarah can i pop in can i pop in i'm like yeah you, you can absolutely but i do want to talk about sabbath with you yes because absolutely. you you piqued an interest in, in this discussion because i find it fascinating and so uh jessica may or may not be interested and i said that the orthodox have a better view on this than most other christians who get up to it in my opinion because in America, and I, you said, you know, why why did we move? Why did we feel like we should be able to move the Sabbath to Sunday? Mm -hmm. And you said that, that was something that that bugged you, which I I think is a, a very interesting question, and it's something that I didn't question until I dated a girl who was a Seventh Day Baptist. I've never heard of Seventh Day Baptist. I hadn't either, because you know there are Seventh Day Adventists, yeah, which is a a, a very fascinating little um uh little sect because a lot of it has to do with um both worshiping on saturday as well as a lot of es eschatological stuff like in time yeah. stuff can i just because i wasn't privy to the beginning part of the sabbath conversation are we talking about why the in the jewish tradition the sabbath is on saturday and in the christian I tradition talk, it's on sunday i want yeah that's what we're going to talk about. okay okay yeah because I find it interesting because it is a question like right now in history and on TikTok, I've noticed there is there are a lot of the same problems. And I mentioned this to you, Jessica, in our Bible study and before where there are still a lot of Judaizers within Christianity who I don't know if you know anything about this, Sarah, but in the early church, there were a lot of Jewish believers who were trying to tell other Christians, especially Gentile Christians, that they had to be circumcised, that they had to follow the Sabbath as Mosaic law stipulated. They had to do this, that, or the other in order, they had to eat kosher, et cetera, in order to be Christian. Because at that point in history, Christianity was viewed as a sect of Judaism. And that split has happened over time where you see that it's no longer considered a 
a sect of Judaism at all. But you, when you said that, I was like, this is something that I've heard a lot of people say. And even on TikTok this week, I some like 16-year-old girl was saying something about, about it. And I was like, it's so weird that I just, when you said it, I had just started listening to a podcast on Sabbath and its history. Wow, very interesting. Because I'm, I'm always looking, and it, it ties into the, to the, the Genesis creation narrative as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's fascinating that there is such debate over it to me. Because so, it's, to me, it seems pretty clear cut what's going on. But I, I know that throughout history, there's been a lot of conflation of ideas. But go ahead. I want to know what you're, what you're thinking. Well, so, okay. So I suppose I came on a bit of a journey with it, really. I did not keep the Sabbath uh, mm-hmm. originally because I am a sort of an, just a Christian, like an independent Christian who reads the Bible. Mm-hmm. I wasn't part of any rigid church. You know, I'd go to Bible studies from time to time and, and meet with people, but I wasn't a member of a formal church. And I am not a member of a formal church other than Christ is the head of the church. Like we're all in the church, you know? Yeah. Um, so I didn't keep uh, the Sabbath and I kind of thought, oh, that's not necessary. But then a number of years ago, it kind of, it was on my heart that, you know, we keep the other of the 10 commandments or we try to, or at least we acknowledge that they should be kept. But we're like, ah, no, not the Sabbath one, like the fourth commandment, like we can scratch that. And I said, well, why are we categorizing that differently from the other 10 commandments? I'm not, so I'm not a Torah observant. I don't believe that we have to follow all the Mosaic laws, but I do believe that we have to follow the 10 commandments. So it doesn't make a lot of sense why we treat this one flippantly. So uh, it weighed on me more and more. And if you look in the Bible, the Sabbath precedes the given commandments. The Sabbath is part of, and we spoke about this at the the beginning, you know, the natural order of things, the right order of things. God himself Mm -hmm. rested on the seventh day. And he says time and time again, that you need to rest, the land needs to rest, people need to rest. It gives, for a number of reasons, both for your own uh, replenishment and rejuvenation, and as well as that, because it gives space for you to be blessed. So you cannot say, for any prophet that comes to you, you can't say, well, I did this by the work and the might of my hands alone, you know, because there's room in the seven days for you to be blessed. It's all in all a good thing. And so it became clear to me that it was right to keep the Sabbath and that the Sabbath is intrinsic to, uh, to creation itself. So then that left me with another question is, and that it's not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles too, of which I am one. You know, the Sabbath yeah. was for everyone. It was created at the beginning before there was Jew and Gentile, before mm-hmm. there was, uh, you know, any sort of church or any sort of religion there was the Sabbath. Um, so the next question was, well, should it be Saturday? Because it's not convenient because if everybody else in the world is doing it on a Sunday, oh, by the way, sorry, the reason I, and then I, I really booked against it. I'm, so I'm skipping the bit where I behaved badly. <laughs> so I should probably <laughs> now. Once it came to my, once I accepted that the Sabbath was important, I did not want to do it and I was, you know, when you know you're working really hard mentally to find a reason not to do something, you're like, well, I don't have to because of this. And well, I, you know, I just need to work. And 
just being really prideful and arrogant and pushing against it. And when you're pushing against something uh, spiritually really hard, you have to kind of wonder, is like, hmm, am I really, uh, who am I really fighting here? Or what am I fighting? Or why am I fighting it? You know, and it was just my own pride and vanity that I didn't want to do it. Once I accepted that I had to do it and that it was something that was going to be good for me as well, and oh well, does it have to be the seventh day? Because Saturday's inconvenient. If everyone else rests on a Sunday, but I'm booking against them and trying to do it on a Saturday, it's 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 going to be fraught. And uh, I suppose the thing is, it's we humans often try and twist or distort the way God has set things. He set it to be the seventh day. It says God blessed the seventh day because on it He rested. He didn't bless the first day. And I suppose it's one of those inversion things, you know, turning the right way on its head, saying, well, we're not going to do it on the seventh. We're going to do it on the first and call it the same. You don't get to do that. We don't have the authority to do it. We are supposed to conform to God's order, not the other way around. And if you think of an example of that in the Old Testament, when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back to Jerusalem and Uzzah puts his hand to it uh, to stabilize it, he wasn't supposed, that's not what you were supposed to do. Just do it the way you were to to told to do it. If you held the post like it was supposed to be carried, there would have been no problem. But he didn't do it the way he was told. He did it another way and was struck down for it. And likewise, we can't just do it our own way and call it the same because it's not. If you do it the right way, the way that you are told, it comes with a blessing. And the Sabbath is, is and should be a delight. And it took me a really long time to come to that. But now that I have accepted it, it's, 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 it's become, it's, it gets better all the time. You know, it becomes more important and it becomes a day to be treasured. I think mm -hmm. it's very suspicious and very strange that the Council of Laodicea, and it was Laodicea that was, well, weren't they the church that was uh, tepid and to be spat out of mouth? that it was then that they instituted the seventh day, or sorry, the first day, the Sunday, being the alleged Sabbath instead. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's convergence with pagan practices. It was a rule put in by Constantine to apply to all people, but he was a sun worshiper. It's where people often say, well, the early church did it. The early church met all the time. It says they were always going from house to house yeah. and breaking bread. It's something they did perpetually. And they did keep the Saturday Sabbath and meet on Saturdays. It's just that they were meeting all the time. Well, there, people, there, one more thing, there one is more a history. People, people refer to 1 Corinthians when it says they collected money uh, on the first day uh, to be put to some sort of a charitable work. The relevance of that is that people often conflate that with being like passing around a collection plate. The reason they collected the money on the first day and not on the Sabbath, not on the seventh day, is because they weren't supposed to handle money on the seventh day. So it was the first mm -hmm. opportunity that they could have done it. Sorry, go ahead, Cam. I just no, no, to I was just I forgot. No, I was just going to say that when it comes to Sabbath, you know, Jesus in Matthew talked about how he was the Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so there is a lot of that going on. Um, but the Sabbath itself never changed. I think sh Shabbat, which is the Jew the Hebrew word for stopping, mm -hmm. for ceasing, and Nuach that happens on that day, which is rest, 
is it never changed from the Sabbath. I think that when people started likening Sunday, which historically is the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week, and the the um, the symbolism behind that is that it is that with Jesus, his resurrection on on Sunday, it is we entered into a world of new creation, and that is that is what happens on the Sunday. And they, there is a lot of meetings that happened on Sunday, and it may have happened on on Saturday as well. But you can see in Revelation, I want to say Revelation one, uh, his vision happens on the Lord's Day, which is not what they ever called the Sabbath in that mm-hmm. time period. So he was referring to something to those churches that they knew what that day was, and typically. What it seemed to be was the Sunday is when they met and no matter what broke the bread and had the Lord's Supper. So historically, that was a separate day. They would a lot of the Jewish believers would keep the Sabbath on Saturday, but then they would also celebrate the Lord's Supper and his resurrection on Sunday due to Jesus's resurrection on Sunday. Mm-hmm. But I think that people like Constantine, people like the Sabbatarians who tried to move the actual Sabbath and make it a Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, a Christian Sabbath conflated two days and that's wrong i don't think you have to worship on sunday but i do think that having that moment of recognizing that jesus was resurrected on sunday and new new um new creation came through on a sunday i think that that's a important point for christians and you know i think there's no reason people complain like sunday is the day of worship i think every day is a day of worship Absolutely. It's the day of rest. It's a different thing. And people are conflating yeah. too and saying, well, because we worship yeah. on a Sunday or because many people worship on a Sunday, that that is also the day of rest. There is, that is said nowhere. There is no reason to believe that. That is something that was introduced by manly churches, not by the Bible. There's no grounding. In and I think it's, I, I think it's also a, touch of legalism that came in through those churches that you had to keep sabbath on this day which is in their case sunday and you have to do it this way you have to do it that way i do think that there's it's an it's a completion that didn't need to happen because i mean even in colossians paul said therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a sabbath these are the shadows of the things to come but the substance belongs to christ and i you know i think it's it's really robbed us of the day of rest because yeah. uh, it's been, when it becomes more legalistic, when it becomes a, a matter of rules and the imposition of an emperor on people and so on and so forth. That's it, it's 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 manly and not godly, and, and I think it's it's exactly like the Pharisees did it, and I think it's. Mm-hmm. taken away the good of the day of rest that you were to sit and yeah. do very very little you were not to travel and you know and the other thing is i'm not saying that you can't do anything all i say all i do my my sabbath i just don't work i can't do anything yeah. that leads me to profit if there was an emergency could i do something for my employer or could i do so if there's something had to be done yes of course because it says if yeah. your cattle fall into a ditch on the sabbath don't you pull him out of course you do right. you know jesus and his disciples picked brains of course you do you can so i just think it's it's the day of rest is important and it needs to be recognized but i think the fact that it is a saturday is important i don't think it's this is not a movable feast you know you can't pick another day and call it well good. i, I- I, I would say that like when Jesus said that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, I do think that there is some leniency, especially within the early church, 
because um, you know there were people who would say that certain festivals were necessary, and you know there was a lot mm. of this debate that happened in the first century, even in the pages of the Bible. Um, but I do think that there are people who um, can Sabbath and Shabbat stop and rest on a different day. I think it's it's important to the lunar cycle, and I think that there's a certain beauty to stopping on Saturday, which I which is something we're talking about doing in our own family is to stop on Saturday. But I don't know if you know this, if you have five children and you go to church on Sunday, that ain't a Sabbath. I was about to, I was about to say, when you think about it, um, is the day of the liturgy, which is on Sunday, is that a rest day for the priest? Most, most assuredly he's, that's his busiest, busiest day of the week. Not for the parents who are bringing their kids to liturgy. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, work that goes into a lot of my Sundays because, you know, we have a coffee hour after Sunday. We're cooking for that. There's a lot of labor that actually goes into Sunday. So um, Cam was saying something about the Orthodox position on this, which I don't claim to speak for right now. <laughs> I'm just speaking for my own sort of personal opinion about um about this in general. So uh, just throwing that out there, although I am an Orthodox, I don't know that this is the Orthodox uh, take on it. My take though, is that there is a danger in legalism that we have these rules that are sort of laid out for us by God. And when we sin, we're missing the mark. We're not exactly hitting the mark with those rules. We find that when we follow the rules, things improve for us. When we have a day of rest, things are better. When we follow the laws of God, things are better in our lives. But it's not to the point where if we miss the mark that we should, you know, be beating ourselves up. We should be casting people out of our society because they're doing things differently. You know, you know, do you guys get kind of what I'm saying? Like yeah. there's there's a there's a a middle path that needs to be walked here that I think that the Jews were missing out on when they were making so many of these legal traditions into things that would keep a person from worshiping at the temple, that would keep people from attending Shabbat dinners, that would keep people away from their families because yeah. they had failed to hit the mark in this regulation or that regulation. So I think the important thing is our recognition that we're worshiping, we're resting, we're living as close a life as we can in our human incapacity to be nearer to God. And legalism can take away from that. I completely, I completely agree. Yeah. I do think there's a, something that's worth uh, mentioning is in Daniel, it says uh, about the beast, it says, he shall speak great words against the most high and think to change times and laws. And it's really interesting that the only time that is also a law is the Sabbath, which is the seventh right. day. And is the one that has been changed. I think that's something that would be really easy to pass over. And again, I'm not saying, uh, uh, I'm not suggesting to be legalistic at all, sure. but much as we talked about the land getting rest every seventh year, it's right, set right. for a reason. There are reasons here that are beyond <coughs> what I can understand, but I do have faith that the God who made that design had a reason for that design and that while resting is good, doing it the way he's outlined is probably better. It is not for yes. me to condemn yes. someone else for meeting or right. for resting on another day. But when, when churches say, 
And some, I'm not saying I don't know anything about the Orthodox Church, but I do know that there are churches that say Sunday's the Sabbath. That was changed. Who are we? Yeah, that's a weird thing to do. And they do say that. I think that's really quite shocking. And the other thing I think is weird, people say, oh, well, the early church did it and it's happened for a really long time. It's like, well, if something's happened for a really long time and it's the wrong thing to do, that doesn't make it any righter. People have done all sorts of bad things for a really long time and it never made them right. I know that the like I said, the problem I think is in the conflation of because the reason I say the Orthodox is good on on it is because they view Sunday as the Lord's Day, not Mm -hmm. as the Sabbath. So this is a different concept that did start with the early church, but that was not replacing the Sabbath. That didn't happen until later on in history, much later Mm -hmm. on in history. So it's, it's interesting to me. And you reminded me of something that I kind of skipped over when I was making my other point about legalism, which is that um, in the early church, they would take they would take communion. They would take the Eucharist on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't this um, we go to church on Sundays to take the Eucharist and that's the day that we do it. Mm -hmm. That's a very new, modern and even some ways westernized uh, way of doing Christianity. Whereas the Eastern Orthodox, um, back in tradition for a very long time, church was a daily thing. And yeah. I even even and now, people, our daily bread. people people will be, yeah. exactly, our daily bread. And people, you know, I remember the other day a friend texted me and she, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm on my way to church. She says, it's Tuesday. I'm like, yeah, like, <laughs> I'm Orthodox, you, you know, like we you, go. <laughs> um, sort of what's the word sort of industrialized like you go to work at this hour or you wake up at this yes. hour. like it's sort of formalized and i just think when you th- think of the early church it's like oh they were meeting all the time they were breaking bread all the time it was a lot more just part of their lives where it was now a- it's like well look it's it's seven o'clock i better go such and such yes and th- yeah. that that there was an effect of um bringing the orthodox church to the united states and that a lot of um, the desire to blend in with the culture made them sort of take on a uh, very churches on Sunday kind of tradition. Whereas for them, it never was that way. Our fe- when you look at the festivals in our calendar, the feasts and the uh, the fasts, the festivals, they're all um, throughout the year. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of one week might be very heavy church in the middle of the week. Mm-hmm. And then Sunday is just your regular old liturgy. So we just recently, this Wednesday, we had the um, the canon of St. Andrew. And that is, you know, a very big beginning of Lent festival for the Orthodox Church. So for us, Wednesday was the big church day this week. This was yeah. the big event for us to go and ha- where we had our, our um, most important sort of focal point for the week of worship was on a Wednesday. Um, in a few weeks, that day will be on a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that there is a very cultural aspect to you go to church on Sunday, that's the day, and then the rest of the week is for whatever, and then su- Saturday is sort of your holiday day. This well, is, um, I don't know if America, sorry, go on. Americanized might, might be the wrong word. I might be being American-centric when I say that, but certainly very Westernized. It's a very Western concept of worship well, that um, I, I don't think... Go ahead. It, it, it fits the industrial model, doesn't it? You know, industrial schooling, sure industrial work, you know, nine to five and all of that. If you can get everybody celebrating or worshipping or resting or whatever on the one day that fits into your schedule, well, all mm-hmm. the better for you if you're an industrialist. 
Right, right. Whereas no. if we ha if we have a celebration on a Monday, that doesn't work for the factory boss, does it? Right. right. Yeah. Very well, much so. And the, the, the beauty of what Paul said in Romans is that there there is liberty in these things. And I think that that's, that's what's really cool about it is I, I do think the um, Christian tradition of highlighting Sunday as the day that Jesus was resurrected is really a cool thing mm -hmm. that we recognize that resurrection and then we re recognize, but mixing it with the Sabbath and making it the Sabbath is not right. That's not what that is. It's not what changed. Jesus didn't change the Sabbath to Sunday. He just was resurrected on a Sunday and giving special attention to that day. And then eventually into Easter, Passover, that time period is also really cool. It's really great that we spend a special moment to recognize his resurrection and our eventual resurrection and that new creation that we get to be a part of. We get to be a part of the new creation where we get to be imagers of God again where we get to till the ground and make it beautiful and bring the order out of chaos. Like it's a very beautiful thing, but th there is, I love that there is liberty because I mean, in Romans, it talks about, uh, you know, one person considers one day more sacred than, than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. <clears throat> Whoever regards one day as special uh, does so to the Lord. Whoever and eat, whoever eats meat does so to the Lord for they give thanks to God and whoever abstains does so for the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives our lives alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that He might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. And so, it, you then, why do you why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Mm -hmm. So that's, there's freedom. That's yeah. And it's and it's it's centered on the love of one another. <coughs> and there are a lot of people, nefarious people throughout history. I think Constantine was horrible for the church in many ways. So many ways. And someone, someone said the other day in a tweet that, um, I know you don't like Constantine, but do you really wish that our um, our Christian ancestors continued to be tortured or oppressed or persecuted? And I'm like, I think that there's a lot of bad that came out of some of these things in history that led to more religious freedom. But look at the the life of the Chinese church who has to hide underground. They're they are arguably more faithful and more in love with Jesus than a lot of the Westerners who go to church on Sunday and hear a sermon and yet never meet Jesus. Mm -hmm. So it's like, who am I to say? Who am I so, to say? I guess with my limited um, experience being of the Orthodox church, we have, um, for example, a lot of the Russian churches will be on the old Julian calendar. And All so right. they'll be celebrating Christmas two weeks after the Western world celebrates Christmas. So. I'm very familiar culturally with people celebrating things on different days and being literally the same religion as me. They're just on a different calendar. And so to me, when I was listening to you guys talk, I was like, oh, I didn't realize this was actually as big a debate as it was because for Orthodox, we're just kind of used to that. Like the Russians are, you know, or anyone who's following the old calendar, they're just now starting Lent when our Lent began at the beginning of the week. 
So well, yeah, we're just you've totally got, used to that. And you've got two different, like in this area where Paul is, where he's going, hey, there's liberty, there's freedom in this area. It's because there were those on the the right hand side, not not that there's nothing about right or left that I'm using here. I'm just saying there were people on this side <laughs> who were saying you have to be Jewish and follow Mosaic law to the T in order to be a Christian. And then on the other hand, he talks in Hebrews uh, about how there are people who um, try to find license to sin through grace. And so they yeah. want to throw out all of the things that God implemented and has said, mm. Sabbath stopping is good. You need to stop. And Paul's like, yeah, stopping is good. And, but there are these warring factions and it's like, Jesus is here going, that's not what's important. Love is important. Stop fighting each other. You stinking idiots. <laughs> but I will say, I will say, I've been thinking about what Sarah said a few minutes ago. And I think that there's some great value in it, which is when we do things the way that we're supposed to do them, our, uh, our blessings come in abundance. So there is something to be said for meeting people where they live and giving people the freedom to do uh, the things they, the way they need to do them. But when we do them right, do we not like, I always say that truth rings when you hear the truth, it just rings in a certain way. And I think like when you're living the right way and you do follow the laws, your life does improve in abundance and in spades. And I, I, yeah. I, I was sort of considering that just as she was saying it, it's landing on me now. And I'm saying, you know, that's true. That that truth rings yeah. to me. Well, and that's and that's why in our family, I've been to, I was talking to my wife the other day, and I was like, I think we need to stop. We need to Shabbat on Saturday, and we'll go to church on Sunday, and we'll we'll do things, and we'll we we're, nice. we worship every day. But I do think that stopping, and because I think that that was the important thing. I, I think that mixing it with you have to do these religious things on this on this Sabbath is not the important part. It's yeah. that you have to stop you, because here, oh, this was the greatest. One of the best points I heard is we view ourselves as a master of our time. Hmm. We view our, we, we view time as currency in a sense. We spend time, hmm. we make time, we, hmm. you know, save time. There are all of these different things. And we view ourselves as the arbiter of our own time, as the masters of our own time. And so giving up control and, and, and letting God be the master of your time on a day of the week. I'm not going to say it's super important that it's Saturday because some people have lives that I'm not a part of. But if you can make that time on the seventh day and then partake in the new creation and doing the work the next, do that. That's good yeah. for you. Because the, the, the grace you, you receive from doing it the right way is expounded. Like, I think you should worship every day. Right. I think you I, should do I think you should do spiritual reading and prayer every day. But I do think that if you don't stop, if you run yourself ragged, you're not giving you're not giving yourself or your time or your being over to God in the way that you need to to fully be human in the way you were meant to. Mm -hmm. and, and you become unable to rest. Like this was one of the verses that really made a difference to me in my rebellious phase of this whole thing and i'm not entirely not rebellious at any one point we're always i think <laughs> trying to yeah, rein that in but in were isaiah, you surfers yeah in isaiah it says god will speak to this people to whom he said this is the resting place let the weary rest and this is the place of repose but they would not listen so then the word of the lord to them will become 
do and do, do and do, rule and rule, rule and rule, a little here, a little there, so that they will go back, go and fall backwards, be injured and snared and captured. So in other words, he's telling you to rest. And if you are so headstrong as to not do it, as I was and as I still struggle against, well, eventually you'll get to a place where you're just a sort of a working machine. Like you will not yeah. be able to extricate yourself from that. Yeah. In Psalms, it talks about, uh, he, says, he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Like there's, we need to stop. We need to stop. It's good to stop. If you're not stopping, you you're losing. You're losing the battle. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I one of the things that if you look at all of human history, especially in regards to um, the Hebrew scriptures and um, the New Testament Christianity, um, if you look at the first sin, original sin, as Catholics call it, which is a loaded term like calling it that is so loaded depending on who you're talking to was the 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 deceiver telling us that we could be like god that we could usurp his power and decide what is right or wrong we can be the ones who are not following and being co-workers in what he has for us but that we can be in charge we can be the masters of our time and that's the lie that we have to overcome and it's the it's a lie that um sabbath breaks it says no you're not in control of your time now and, and it's very, it's moving into that it's very alien to the modern mind because the modern mind is so work driven and so you know productivity yes. and you know it's 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 all about movement and action you know and um about filling every moment and it's it's very different and i'm not sure obviously i wasn't alive a couple of thousand years ago but it's i would love to if you could put a modern person and a person from 2000 years ago side by side would they're even leaving aside christ would they have the same perception of what time is and how it is to be used I, i'm not sure, sure would. yeah well i mean it'd be very different seeing that we have weekends and they the the that when jews in the di diaspora were in different areas they all thought it was really strange that they didn't work on saturday like why aren't you working that that's where the um it's not as much of a stereotype now but in early years especially in the first few centuries and before uh jews were considered to be lazy because they didn't work on sunday huh. that was an ancient stereotype that jews were lazy Interesting. Isn't that wild? And so, so clearly, us having two days off as kind of the standard is why it would be wildly different than theirs. I think. I think that there is something to be said, though, of about how agricultural that the everyday person used to have to be. That you would have these um, periods of uh, enormous activity during the summertime, yeah. during the springtime, and then for winter, you would be largely. Uh, sedentary, not yeah, having a lot to do. Cycle to things. Right, right. And so there wasn't this sort of like a work really hard for five days, off for two, work really hard for five days, off for two. Um, and the invention of uh, electric light at night has probably really changed the human perception of time because it yeah. used to be that people, when the sun went down, they went to bed. Well, and I now. I, 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 I heard a researcher the other day, and I don't know the validity of this, but a lot of it rings true. They reckon that the modern person is getting two hours less sleep per night than just 100 years ago. That's mm -hmm. a big difference. That's a big difference. Also, there, um, 
another researcher that I was looking into this topic said that um, people used to wake up at midnight naturally and our nights would be split into the beginning part of the night and then the morning part of the night. And that actually used to be a a high time for prayer that people Mm -hmm. would wake up, they would check on their livestock, check on their children, walk around the property, and then they would pray. And so when you look back into sort of ancient liturgical texts, you'll see a lot of midnight services. Mm -hmm. Um, midnight prayers and things of this nature. And I'm like, where are all these midnight prayers coming from? Well, when you lived in agricultural life and you didn't have uh, light, electrical light, you uh, had a really long night yeah. much of the year. And so you would wake up for an hour or two in the middle of the night, which kind of makes me feel better about the fact that I can't sleep straight through eight hours. I have never been able to do that. Not Apparently... Either. None of us evolved to do that. That's not our normal sleeping pattern. This is brand new since the invention of the light bulb. It um, So now at this point when I wake up around midnight and I do my little walk around the house, I'm like, okay, this is more natural and more human, I think, than the other way around. You know, the other thing thinking about kind of the, the cycle and seasonal aspect of things is as you said, we didn't always work five days rest too. And there, there were periods of the year where you would work harder or more physical work and then there were right, periods right. of harvest and then periods of downtime and so on and so forth. Uh, and there's different foods come in and different weather and so on. But the other thing that I think is interesting is we would have had different, I eat the same things in January as I do in June. Right. I might mix it up a little bit like if I see I don't know strawberries strawberries are a local speciality here we grow really good ones uh you might eat more of them in summer and a little less of them in winter when they're imported but peaches yeah exactly it's the same roughly year round I don't think that was the case until very very recently and I do wonder and this is totally off the top I don't know if it's actually true um I do wonder if because our nutritional demands would change year round in terms of what vitamins we might need. If we're eating a very flat or very um, standardized diet, I don't know that we're probably getting the nutrients we need in differing amounts at different times of the year. I'd love to read about it. I'd love to study it. I don't know. Is there anything to that? Conceptually, it makes sense. I I think to me. I think that there is because they um, talk about how the amount of vitamin D in your body um, helps you process like vitamins that you would get from fruit. So during the summer, you would be exposed to a lot more sun. You would Mm -hmm. have more vitamin D. You would be able to the bio excuse me, the bioavailability of nutrients and fruits and vegetables. You have more uptake for that. Whereas in the winter, you have less vitamin D, but you also have less fresh fruits and vegetables that you're trying Mm -hmm. to uptake bioavailability bioavailability. Gosh, that's a hard word to say. Bioavailability um, being more available in the summertime when you have a more activity that you're doing and more sun exposure makes a lot of sense. So it might not necessarily be a good thing for you to be eating a bunch of like papaya and mango in December when you're, there's less sunlight to produce uh, what you'll be able to actually use from that. And that's something that I've I've sort of considered on my own. And you kind of like brought that out as like, this is actually something that we might be changing the paradigm of the way that yeah, we I'm eat. Sure. I'm not sure that it's a good thing. Like even I, have, I was saying earlier, I have chickens and I feed them what we call layer pellets, which is a commercial feed. And right. what I noticed was, so a chicken shouldn't lay all the time. 
Mm-hmm. When you get less than eight hours of sunlight a day, they'll usually stop laying or go to every other day. They'll wind down a little bit. But I noticed that this past year, they never stopped laying. I just kept feeding them. They kept laying. Um, previous years, they've stopped of their own accord and started of their own accord. And while it was great for me because I got to eat eggs, fresh eggs all winter, on the other hand, I thought that might not be the best thing for that animal. Surely if it's designed to have a particular cycle across the an annular cycle where they wind down and have a little less pressure on the body and then start up again in spring, maybe the food, and I don't know if this is the cause, but perhaps the food is just so nutrient laden and mineral laden that they kept going. And I'm not sure, surely that would exhaust their reserves. I can't think that that would be a good thing. Right, right. Well, it's, it's, it's also wild to me because even despite, like people want to make these sweeping decisions on what people should eat across the human race. Yeah, they don't right. want it to, they, they don't take into consideration that in, you know, the people who are from Ireland are uniquely suited for certain food sources there that that grow and they they adapt to them just like in here she'd like this so you know irish people have a super high high rate of celiac disease Mm -hmm. i would not be surprised we are really bad at grains i mean we have a very small amount of land that's suitable for grain and typically we don't get the optimum protein content just because of the amount of this because the nature of our weather and how wet it is and I think that the fact that we are not geographically suited to growing grain is related to the fact that we're also a lot of celiacs here. Yep. yep. So that yep. feeds into what you're saying. You know, it's not the same universally that there's different, uh, I suppose, proclivities and, and um, predispositions. Yeah. Well, and it's it's like uh, another thing that I was someone said the other day that really I was like, wow, that's true, is they talked about how time exists and we understand time but at a certain point we with the invention of the watch or the clock rather than the sundial you yeah. start getting artificial time and then you add in gaslight and then um light bulbs and you get all of this the industrial revolution you have all of this stuff that leads to human beings not functioning the way they are because people would go to sleep when the sun was down they'd wake up mm-hmm. in the middle of the night they'd they'd say their prayers they'd they'd talk to their wife mm-hmm. they'd have more conversation with their 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 children i'm sure than they do now but we've lost these very net our, our connection to the dirt yeah mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and i think that that's that's really sad but it's we're we're living in a place where there are so many usurpers and then there are these we're all usurpers but there are these ultimate usurpers who are trying to tell us not just to give them their our money not just that we uh have to live in this place or do this or we have to have a yard that looks like that we have people who are out there on the global stage trying to tell sub-saharan africans what they need to eat as based on the needs of those in North America who came from Europe. Mm. I don't think that that makes sense. Does that not, does right. that make sense to anyone? Cause I mean, obviously they have different right. needs than we do. They have adapted to their climates in very different and ways than we have. The African diet, which I have looked a lot into recently is actually extremely healthy. And a lot of the foods that are native to the different countries there are, uh, 
very um, nutrient rich, nutrient dense types of foods to have someone from America. Have someone from America. I'm going <laughs> to say that she was going to say, tell them what they need to eat is ludicrous. That's what I'm going to yeah. say. She was going to say, you know, guess. I think it's something along those lines. All right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And it, we just, you know, I saw a really interesting paper recently talking about, because yourself and Monica were talking about, the Irish diet and there was interesting research that suggested that after potatoes were introduced here uh, and there was less people switched to eating more of these root vegetables and less reliance on animal meat animal fats yeah. and particularly dairy Come to Africa to tell nutritional quality actually took a dip for a long, long time because people weren't eating the more nutrient-rich dairy foods, buttermilk, butter, cheese, things yeah. like that, and were instead eating potatoes. So something coming in from outside, while it may be good, doesn't mean yeah. it's better or doesn't mean it's optimal. Yeah, right. not optimal for you. And, and it, in America, with all of my different genes, I need to look at the Irish, I need to look at the Scottish, I need to look at the, the Vikings, and I need to go, okay, what did they eat? What are they built for? And maybe that's why there are certain things that I could fix in my own body that don't function quite correctly. Maybe if I just looked at where my genes are from, that would help. I wonder what the different um, soil compositions of those areas have to teach us as well, as far as like, the food that we grow, because we're all monocropping these very specific plants in this very specific soil. But if you come from Northern Europe or if you come from Africa, your ancestors evolved eating vegetables that were from those soils. So I wonder what you're, we're, we're missing from our native soils in our food that we don't and get the animals the that And the animals that ate those plants right. that we then get bioavailability through their eating it and it being processed into their meat. Right, right. Yeah, you know, and I suppose the the more industrial production is, and the more processed the food is, I, I think that the less that the less it reflects what is required and, and what is provided at the one location. I do think, obviously, diversity in your diet is good, um, but people survived long long before there was a food pyramid and long before we were importing uh you know exotic fruits from other parts of the world uh i do think that maybe one of the good things of recent years is people looking more closely at you know what can we grow here what how what can i what can i the individual grow or how can i buy local and yeah. things like that. i don't think that's just a fad i do think that there is some uh something of material value to that yeah, I think that just eating off of it, making eating off of the land that you live in is very important. Whether or not it worked well for people in Ireland who were there for millennia is good. And you should you should take that into consideration with what you eat. But if you're planning to live in America, in Florida or in Georgia or in Alabama, you need to be able to ground yourself in what is there. Right. Because because that is your environment and you should become closer to that environment, whether or not you were from there originally or not. Yeah. Oh, hey, uh, I just want to throw this out there just in case there are people listening and um, everything in the world turns completely upside down. Uh, after you hear this, you can eat kudzu. 
kudzu is all over the place in America. It's growing up the sides of the roads. You can totally eat it. It's like spinach. So if people find themselves without a readily available source of food, you can eat kudzu. It's Throw so it out there, guys. It's so funny you should say that. I was only reading about that the other day. Like, but they call it the vine that ate the South. Is it really yeah. yep. Yes. Wow. I, I, I thought that surely this is everywhere in the, in the United States. But then I left and I was like, where's the kudzu? I've never, I've never seen it. I, I didn't realize it was such an issue. Was it's it, it was oh, yes. mental part? It makes, Somebody... it makes light poles and trees look like uh, dinosaurs on the side of the road. So if, if you may have seen, seen ivy, English ivy oh. that grows up the sides of buildings, it's actually quite lovely and it's yeah. not extremely invasive. Yeah. Somebody thought that kudzu looked enough like ivy that they brought it over here for the same purpose. And it's extremely invasive. It took over everywhere. But I, I think there's a plot and a plan to the way that things go. And the fact that kudzu is edible and everywhere might turn out to be important later on. So for those of you who don't know, you can eat that stuff. And it, if it comes down to it, just, you know, not starting any controversial topics or anything but just in case we find ourselves not readily available to get food anytime soon just know that you can't eat kudzu maybe not the <laughs> kudzu directly on the side of the road that might have some contaminants in it but you go back you know a few hundred yards into the forest it's everywhere you can eat it you can eat everything except for the roots i think wow yeah i mean as invasive plants go i guess that's not the worst thing in the world we have um we have Japanese knotweed, rhododendron, and giant hogweed. There are three big invasives at the moment, and they are a nightmare and good for nothing. And good for nothing. Oh, no. <laughs> well, the good thing, yeah. though, is in the Everglades, we have um, Burmese pythons, and you can eat those if you'd like. So. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, it has been an absolute joy to talk to you. It's I so have enjoyed to talk it. To you guys. I really appreciate it. Oh yeah. Uh, so I don't have anywhere to point you, point people to find you. So I, I won't. No, there's because... nowhere really. Nothing. I have nothing to plug. I have nothing to advertise. Uh, if I was say to anyone, uh, get grips with your Bible. Don't be afraid of the Sabbath. It's a good thing, and it's something that's for you. It's not something that's. Uh, imposed upon you but it's something that you might find good i found it good when i could get my head around and the other thing that i would tell people to do is go out and dig a hole get your hands in the dirt you'll be amazed of what you'll learn just getting your hands in the dirt and seeing how it all works and just Amen, lick your finger sister. once don't, <laughs> don't eat copious amounts just give it one and you're good cam said um, that not me yeah, I was going to say, don't take Cam's advice on things to lick. Just eat for the kids at home. Um, no, but one of the things we do before we, we let our um, let our guests go is we ask them what right now in your life could be personal, local, global, national. What's something that gives you hope right now that you could share with people to help them carry on and motivate them to keep going. You know, if there is a God who made us and who cared enough to make us individually and then cared enough to send his son to save us, well, there's there is, that is boundless hope. And not mm. every day feels good. And sometimes you look at the news and your heart just sinks. But you know something? 
we're here because of him. We're not just dust that exploded. We're not just accidents of biology. We're actually here because somebody loves us. And there's a lot of hope in that. That's what gives me hope. Awesome. Well, with that, again, thank you for coming on. I'll let, I'll let you go and then I'll tell them all the stuff we're doing in the future. Uh, but I appreciate you. And if I would just love, I'm, I'm going to let you know, we're going to probably talk again at some point about so maybe good. soil, but I hope so. we really appreciate you coming on. And you've been, like I said, you've been a joy. So I appreciate it. It's been it. an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. All right. So for the rest of you, um, I'm going to tell you what's coming up next week. Uh, it's I, unless something changes, it's just going to be, I'll be there, but I won't be on the screen because it's going to be a girl's night with Jessica and Britt. <laughs> It'll be the first time ever, unless something changes, where you do not see me in an episode. That's never happened before in the history of ever. And so let's let's see how that goes. But uh, Britt, who was once on Freckles and Britt, will be, I don't know what they're doing now, but she'll be back on to talk to Jessica. Right after that, we have our wrap-up of the month Brad episode where we're going to have fun and talk and maybe talk about all the different things we learned this month. We'll see. But Brad Binkley's back at the end of this month and it'll be a lot of fun. Then we're going to start the road to Easter. So we have, it's only two weeks. It's not December. We're not going four weeks into this because I didn't think about doing it four weeks before until too late. Um, But after that, we have our friend Cody Cook coming back, and we're going to talk about the relation between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the full story of the gospel and how there are a lot of things that we miss. And we're going to lead that up into our episode with Glenn Peoples, who we're going to talk about the resurrection. We're going to talk about what's so special about Easter, what's so special, what does that mean for us, what is the new creation going to be, what are we looking forward to. Um, but beyond that, uh, I don't have anything for you besides telling you to join our Patreon. You could have listened to this with us early if you joined our okay. Patreon, but you're not here. So I'm disappointed in you. And Jessica is probably going to make some kind of soup, some bad soup in your honor. She's going to make terrible soup and she's going to name it after you. Don't you. Like, just because you don't like soup. This I'm is just Cam, saying you're going to make an evil soup. You're going to make an evil soup. Prejudice. Well, soup is, prejudice. Soup is a side dish. Soup. Um, soup is a side dish, but, uh, you could join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the mad ones. We're going to be having next week, a St. Patrick's day party on Thursday. Yes. We just talked about it this morning. I'm going to set that up. We're going to have a zoom party with games and we're going to ha- have fun and chat with each other. So if you want to be a part of that, you can, you can join that now. Yes. And since you're listening to this on Wednesday, you can be at the party tomorrow. So do that. Um, <laughs> beyond that, I'm on Twitter at ham Carlos. Jessica's on Twitter at Soup Canarchist. We have a Bible study that we do every Thursday. Paused for St. Patty's this week, obviously. We're in the middle of Acts, so if you want to join us to talk about that, just message me on Twitter. Or, I mean, I guess I could give people who don't use Twitter something. Uh, you can email me at cam at mlganetwork.com, and I'll, I'll get you hooked up. Um, beyond that, what do we have? If you're listening, we're also on YouTube. We go live every Wednesday night, 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Right. Um, it's, we also simultaneously stream to Odyssey and Rockfin. If you're watching, you can listen to us on any podcatcher you, you can think of. You can go directly to our website, wearethemadones.com. And if you want to get a shirt or a mug or a tank top, tank tops are the best kind of thing you can wear on your upper half. Um, go to wearethemadones.com slash store. 
But that's all I got also, for you. You got anything? Also, yes. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube right now, please hit the like button or the subscribe button or both if you want to be friendly. That helps us bump us up in the algorithm and um, gets helps us keep the lights on for the podcast. So thank you so much for your support. Also sharing. Copy the link, share it with a friend. If you, if you think this will interest them, share it with them. The only way we grow is if we have people listening to us chat with people that we find interesting. That's the only way to do it. So that's all we got for you. So as always, you have a chance to be a light in the world. So go light it up. Yeah.